everybody, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pub Podcast. And our guest today is a blast from the past. Professor Doug McAdam is an acclaimed sociologist who studies social movements at Stanford University, but he's also someone I reached out to seven or so years ago when DAC was just getting started to ask some questions about how to create change. And as we'll hear in this conversation, <laughs> Doug predicted many of the mistakes we'd ultimately make. And unfortunately, maybe we didn't listen to his advice as carefully as we should have. But seriously, a lot of the mistakes he identified are mistakes that are very hard to fix because they relate to the basic nature of the human condition. Purity politics, the inability of people to see and understand people who are different from them. But there's a lot you get from Doug's work and from this conversation that should give us hope too. In particular... They're essentially two emotions we need to try and mobilize if we're trying to create change in our own lives or in the world. And, and those two emotions are anger and hope. If you have those two things, you can accomplish an enormous amount. This is a pretty important conversation for me personally, too. And I, I think I didn't quite even realize that until I started preparing for the podcast because a study Doug did, in fact, one of the most important studies he did in the 1980s on the origins of the civil rights movement and how the civil rights movement convinced so many hundreds of thousands of people to make huge sacrifices for change had enormous personal impact on my life. And in particular, there's one regression, regression table in that study that I've shown probably hundreds of people. Maybe I've even shown it to you. If you've been to a workshop that um, we conceived of a direct action everywhere called How to Change the World in One Generation, you've seen this table. <laughs> but this one table changed the course of my life personally. And maybe is a good example of how data if we listen to it, can make our lives better. I don't want to give it away too much, though. So listen to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I found it incredibly insightful, as I always find conversations with Doug, and I hope you will, too. Without further ado, here's Professor Doug McAdam. Doug, it's been a while. It has. And I am really excited about this conversation. I was actually uh, chatting this morning with the person who replaced me at the Animal Rights Organization I found about some notes I took from our first conversation, how you'd predicted all the mistakes we were going to make. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to doing a post-mortem with you about what we did wrong and how we could have fixed it. One of the things we did wrong was probably just not take as seriously uh, the advice you gave us, oh, no. but, um, which was very good advice. And I will say, like, we did try, but mm -hmm. some of the problems you described that social movements are facing have probably gotten worse. Would you agree with that? I would, okay. absolutely. Um, but the first question I want to start with is, you know, you're... You're someone who's studied social movements and social change and social conflict for your entire adult life, basically. Uh, and if you look out there in the world today, as someone who has studied so much conflict and, and change, is there anything that gives you hope? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't see Doug's I face right bad, now. I picked but, a bad day yeah, to go yeah, off yeah, my yeah, meds. Yeah. No. Um, well, I will say the the demonstrations um, uh, that followed George Floyd's murder mm. were extraordinary, just extraordinary. Uh, you know, uh, African Americans have been essentially there's been an African American freedom struggle you know, 300 years, um, and and there's been there's been a small number of whites or those of other racial or ethnic groups who have been allies of 
previous chapters in that African-American freedom struggle. Including the Civil Rights Movement, which you studied extensively, right? There was white participation in that. There was, but I wouldn't overrate how much. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were a few campaigns like Freedom Summer, which were notable because of the white involvement, the involvement of white college students. But in general, you know, the the foot soldiers of of all of the various chapters of this movement have been African-American for the most part. The demographic diversity of the George Floyd protests were stunning and Mm -hmm. unprecedented. The size of them, the duration over time, the geographic spread, and again, the demographic diversity, that gave me serious hope at some level. Um, You know, I I think there's no question that um, those who would prefer to live in an inclusive democratic America far outnumber Hmm. Those who would, who are opposed to kind of that, uh, the idea of a, a, a multiracial society and a, and a vibrant democratic one, and yet that doesn't mean, you know, because the numbers, the, the numbers are greater, that we will of course retain and in, in, enrich and strengthen this multiracial democracy. I, I my. my the prospects, from my point of view, for retaining America as a democratic country are, are pretty bleak. Yeah, in, in not just America, you're seeing scary signs in other countries. Like Absolutely. Hungary, and obviously what's happening Poland. in Russia right now, Poland, and France, you know, Brazil. Macron won a surprisingly close victory against someone who is, you know, far right to the point that she doesn't even like other Europeans. Exactly. <laughs> She's not just against the Muslims. She's so nationalistic. She's like, I don't want to be a part of the European Union. I mean, or, I think Na- she's, or NATO. Or NATO. You know, I, we, we, France only. You know, right. it's, and it's just, it's, it's a weird kind of backlash yeah. to this, you know, lowercase L liberal project where for, for hundreds of years since the Enlightenment, scholars have been talking about how, you know, all human beings are created equal. We should try and have mm-hmm. a more inclusive society. And in, in many ways, I think a lot of academics and activists thought maybe this has been realized at the, after the end of the Cold War, and mm-hmm. it seems like not quite yet. No, I, no, and I don't know whether you want to s- start talking about what the future might hold or whether yeah. we're going to come back to that. That's obviously up to you. But Yeah. So how do you, how do you square those two phenomena? Because on the one hand, you just pointed out rightly, I think, that we had a powerful social movement in the United States that still exists today. I mean, it's, it's weakened. But I'm in Berkeley, and unsurprisingly, <laughs> Berkeley had the largest march, I think, in the history of Berkeley. And it was everybody. I mean, I, I was out there, and it, it, it felt like I saw every single one of my neighbors. I, I think it might have been over 50% of the entire population yeah. of Berkeley was out there marching. Where were you when that was happening? Uh, were, were you I, still in Palo Alto? I was, yes, in Palo Alto, and did um, some, um, participated in protests or marches mm-hmm. in Oakland. Uh, nothing, oh, wow. actually, nothing down the peninsula. There were some, but I wasn't involved in those. Sure. Um, I also went down to L.A. because I have a daughter who lives there. And she just, again, I don't think she even really thought about the issue. She just was in the street the next day. Yeah, wow. And was sending me clips, and they were inspiring. And so I drove down and stayed with her and participated down there some. Yeah. So 
So and it was, it was incredible. It was really powerful. So how do you explain this, this modern phenomenon where we have these really powerful movements for, for racial justice? And mm -hmm. I think for climate too. I mean, sure. you wrote this piece in, I think, 2017, which I think was pointing out some of the failings of the climate movement. I'm actually very curious to see whether you think they've overcome some of those failings. My view is they have, at least to some extent. I agree. That the movement has I become agree. a lot more powerful than it was and four a lot or five more, years a lot ago more grassroots. And a lot more grassroots. Absolutely. That's what, what I principally was saying in that piece is it's surprising how little um, grassroots activism around climate change there is. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably was principally thinking about the U.S., but boy, uh, in terms of European, yeah. um, you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more grassroots activism around yeah. the issue than there was when I wrote that piece. So how do you explain this increase in grassroots activism, this increase in diverse participation in grassroots movements? as of Black Lives Matter, accompanying mm -hmm. these incredibly repressive forces trying to push us in the other direction. I mean, what's your explanation for that? Well, I think, again, some, I, I, this certainly isn't an original observation, but um, to the extent that what we're seeing on the right is a, a really a desperate effort to retain white power, hmm. literally white supremacy. Um, I, I remember David from the writer from the Atlantic, I'd say three years ago, I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I was watching him on some talk show and he said, just matter of factly that, you know, if Trump and his allies cannot win, uh, stay in power democratically, they're perfectly prepared to do so non-democratically. Hmm. And that's sort of what, what I think happened. helps reconcile this. Numerically, mm -hmm. those in favor of an inclusive, just America, I think, are clearly more numerous. Mm -hmm. But that really motivates the other side to, to tip the scale, yeah. to amplify white voice and suppress other voices. So all the voter suppression laws that have gone into effect, this most recent ex round of extreme gerrymander, uh, gerrymandering, um, and a packed court. Explain what that is. What is gerrymandering? For gerrymandering Folks is, have probably heard that term before, but right. maybe not understand it fully. Uh, gerrymandering is the drawing of district boundaries um, um, in such a way as to favor your side. And both mm -hmm. sides have done this historically, uh, you know, mm -hmm. at, no question. But, but the legislatures, state legislatures are the ones who draw those boundaries, and Republicans control many more state houses than Democrats do. Yeah. So they're in a position, especially in critical swing states, to tip the scales. Mm -hmm. And they've done so very, very effectively. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's very likely that the Democrats will lose control of Congress in the midterm elections. I mean, that, that's pretty typical for the off-year midterm election following a presidential race. But I think they've got things in place that will make it virtually impossible not to reclaim Congress. Mm -hmm. And I, we should add one other thing. You'll remember that after Donald Trump lost, um, he insisted he won, and he was trying to pressure Republican election officials in various key states to just find him some more votes mm -hmm. to certify the election in his favor. Thank God none of them did. Um, but Trump allies have gone out and replaced election officials with Trump loyalists in certain places. So 
you know, if the actual results don't do the trick, they may be in a position starting in the midterms to certify whatever results fit their, their agenda. Yeah. So, you know, if in fact, and then if in 2024, a Republican, a Trump kind of either Trump or a Trump loyalist is elected and has Congress and Mm -hmm. a packed court, it yeah. won't matter how numerous, you know, the, the, how, what the numbers look like in terms of those who would prefer to live con- in a multiracial, just, inclusive society. Yeah. And that scares me. Yeah. You know, well, yes, we were born, just because we were born a democracy doesn't mean we're, you know, we're guaranteed to remain one. Yeah. And I think it's scaring a lot of people around the country. Right. Um, and I think the piece of it that... I see a lot of especially young people struggling the most with is this sense that there's nothing we can do about it, <laughs> the sense of disempowerment. And, and it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you because you've been a scholar, observer, and sometimes participant of grassroots movements that have done something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess let's, let's back up then a little bit. And I, I asked you what makes you hopeful or concerned about mm-hmm. the state of the world today. And, and let me just take us back to your beginnings as a scholar. Um, what made you interested in social movements? Uh, the times, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, so this I mean, is like the 1960s when you were Yeah, I mean, I was born in 1951. Don't okay. do the math. Okay. Uh, it's, it, <laughs> it, scares, it scares me. So um, You're still but, young. You've got the energy of a 20-year-old. Right? <laughs> I, you do. Every Thank time you. I've talked to you, I feel like you get younger as the years pass. You don't, you don't look a day older than when I first met you six you years ago. You don't either, actually. <laughs> you don't either. Well, thank you. We'll be complimenting each other for several more hours here, folks. Um, no, but I, I, I mean, you know, uh, I really, some of my earliest sort of vivid political memories were a function of the civil rights movement. Yeah. You know, again, fifth, born in 51, so the, these key events, these incredible moments of high drama in the civil rights movement uh, were exploding. You know, the the sit-ins occurred in 1960. I don't actually have any memory of that. Hmm. I would have been eight or something. Um, But but, so Birmingham is 63 and Selma is 65. And Mm -hmm. I absolutely remember the march across the bridge. I remember Freedom Summer, not actually what was happening in Mississippi necessarily, but if you remember the story, so in 1964, uh, coalition of civil rights groups, but principally SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, recruits uh, primarily white northern college students to come to Mississippi to try to register black voters. This is an election year, a presidential election year. And first week of the project, three volunteers are kidnapped, uh, tortured, and murdered. And it's front page news the rest of the summer. And it certainly had my attention. Um, very quickly, it becomes clear that Mississippi is not going to, Mississippi registrars are not going to register black voters. Mm-hmm. So in a brilliant strategic stroke, in my, in my view, SNCC says, okay, we'll freedom register. We'll freedom register anybody who wants to, black or white. Obviously, most of those who <laughs> cared to register, freedom register, were black. But they registered what does that mean? What does freedom register They mean? said, okay, you're not going to let us participate in the party structure, the, the electoral structure of Mississippi, 
Um, so we'll create a parallel structure. We'll mm. create the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and we'll freedom register you. And at the end of the summer, as the summer's coming to a close, we will hold precinct meetings and then county-level meetings and finally a meeting of the entire party in Jackson, Mississippi to select a delegation to go off to Atlantic City to challenge the seating hmm. of the all-white Mississippi delegation. Interesting. Brilliant. Yeah. And they, I remember this on television and remember, you just hard not as a 12-year-old, an idealistic 12-year-old, not to be going, this is so right. Yeah. Okay, what's happening? And especially after people have been murdered. Oh yeah, murdered literally for just trying to register people to, to vote. vote. And there was uh, there's something that's pro forma at all major meetings of the you know conventions of the major parties. It's called the credentials committee, and the credentials committee just pro forma reviews the credentials of each delegation as they come. Mm -hmm. So everything seems to be in order. Here are your passes to go to the convention floor. Well, it, is, it wasn't pro forma this year, at least not with respect to Mississippi, because the challenge delegation showed up and, and they, they you know, made their case in front of the credentials committee. Hmm. And what I remember is this extraordinary woman, Fannie Lou Hamer, hmm. who was a 42-year-old black woman, grown up on a plantation, and she told her story to the credentials committee. And I'll try to do this really, really quickly. Two years earlier, she had, SNCC had, Tried, said, why don't you be, we're going to take a group down to the courthouse in Ruleville, Mississippi. Do you want to come with us, try to register to vote? She said, okay. Hmm. They were turned away. And as the bus that was transporting them is driving out of town, it's pulled over by the police, and everybody on the bus is arrested for impersonating a school bus. Wow. And impersonating put, a school yeah, bus? Not even, not even a law. Okay. But put in jail overnight, beaten... And she, the next morning, she suffered injuries that really affected her the rest of her life. She, they, they released them the next day. This was clearly just to scare people and say, no, you don't want to try doing this, yeah. okay? She goes back to the plantation where she's lived for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and the overseer says, you can't, you can't live here anymore. Hmm. So she, she has nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, she throws in her lot with SNCC and becomes a major leader of the movement. Wow. And she tells this story to the committee and finishes it by saying, if you don't seat us, I question America. And I remember just I'm crying. <laughs> just, just, wow. this is so inspiring. Was so, this on live television? I guess oh, there yes. probably wasn't live television back then. It was recorded. Oh, yeah. there, there was live yeah, television. But, okay. In fact, it's not the stage-managed affair it is now watching a major political convention. It yeah. was gavel to gavel with wow. all the rawness and weirdness. That sounds so much more interesting. Oh, it was way more interesting. <laughs> now, yeah. this is what I've read. I don't certainly don't have a memory of this. Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's the sitting president, and he, you know, he was he really was incredibly courageous yeah. in pressing for major civil rights legislation, even though he knew it would piss off the southern wing of his party. Yeah. Right? But he didn't want to needlessly antagonize the Dixiecrats, as they were called. And so he got word that Fannie Lou Hamer was testifying, and he quickly held an impromptu news conference so that the networks would cut away to him because he knew how devastating this testimony was. Hmm. Anyway, 
So my, my point testimony is it on YouTube somewhere? Can you see it? I'm sure it's got to be available, right? I've never, I've never even heard this story. Um, I've, kind of I've never it. tried. Okay. I'd be sort of surprised if it was there, still there, but it might be, it might okay. be. The point is, um, when when she was testifying, I would have been 12. 12. Yeah. So these are pretty formative years. Yeah. And the rightness of that just was so transparently obvious mm-hmm. to me. Um. So never got involved in civil rights activism. I mean, the movement goes in a more separatist direction starting mid-60s, and I'm just too young to have gotten involved in any, in any way. And by uh, separatist, you mean kind of black, black nationalism and just basically yes. saying we don't want white people participating in this? Yeah, I mean, it may not have been quite that, that strong. Yeah. Right, but still, you know, this needs to be a black-controlled, yep. okay. black-directed movement. Yeah. And by the way, Freedom Summer, with all those white volunteers coming from very privileged backgrounds, they did some amazing work that summer, but it mm-hmm. also introduced class and racial tensions mm-hmm. into the movement that pushed SNCC, I think, in a more separatist direction as well. In any case, I did get involved in the anti-war movement in a really significant way, late 60s mm-hmm. um, into the early 70s. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I went to college on a basketball scholarship. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the school I went to we, we were on the quarter system, and the basketball season conveniently wrapped up right at the end of winter quarter. So for three years in a row, I just took a leave in the spring, and I did organizing from the start of spring quarter through the summer. Wow. And then came back to, to, to college in the fall. And uh, for two of those, two, two chunks of time, I was in D.C. lobbying for an end to the draft. Wow. So that was what I was doing and so your school just let you leave and just go. Yeah. I, I took, guess you could take a leave of absence. Maybe that's I something just took that a, students can do. I didn't even know you well, could do that. <laughs> the first year I actually took a leave of absence. Uh, but um, the basketball coach sort of threatened saying, you know, you may be jeopardizing your scholarship. The other two years I would just go proactively to faculty, yeah. sympathetic faculty and say, I'm going to go do this. Could yeah. I write a paper Mm-hmm. You know, could I do an independent study with paper. You, with you on <laughs> lobbying, lobbying or nice. something? Okay. And no trouble getting faculty to say sure. That's awesome. So I, I I may I graduated in four years, but was only only <laughs> there, like missed the, the spring quarter. <laughs> Last year I was there spring huh. quarter, but the other three was not. What university was this? This Occidental College in L.A. Okay. And you grew up in California? I grew yeah, up in Southern, in California. Southern California. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So. You know, at that point, I went to grad school, and I was absolutely intent on studying social movements. Yeah. And there wasn't a field. <laughs> was there something about your background and your family that made you particularly interested in what was unfolding with the civil rights movement? I mean, by 1964, the entire country is right. thinking about this because you have the March on Washington, right. and, you know, you have all these fire bombings and lynchings. Yep. And, um, but no. there's nothing that—because, I mean, most people probably did— also pay attention to what was happening in 1963, 1964, with the Civil Rights Act, and so on. Most people probably did not, certainly did not, <laughs> decide to spend the rest of their lives studying, <laughs> studying it. it. Was there something about your background that made you particularly curious? No. What were your I parents like? What, what my did they parents do? Were, were they wonderful. supporters of the Civil Rights Movement? Um, I, I don't. I suspect my dad was not. Really? I have. He was very quiet. But um, after I got, you know, after I became an academic. 
and he saw the things I was studying, he always wanted to engage in conversations about race and hmm. to tell me how it was clear that blacks were, you know, innately inferior or wow. something. And I would politely argue with him. Mm -hmm. We stayed on very good terms. I loved the man. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was sort of um, a really decent man uh, who treated everyone very well. But I think if you gave him a survey, sure. <laughs> he would score out as profoundly racist, sure. I think. My mom, I, I think, was a supporter. But neither, they, they were both also, just keep your head down, don't make waves. Sure. It's sort of lower middle class background. Okay. So um, it certainly wasn't, there was a tradition of activism in the family. And I had oh. three brothers who i all still alive, were very, very close, but none of them were political. Hmm. So I don't really have a, An a, clear, a clear sense <laughs> of why the hell I you know, went the, went the way it did. Yeah. Well, in many ways, I think your, your dad and, and maybe your brothers and maybe to less extent your mom, but cause you sounded pretty supportive of the civil rights movement were indicative of the public mood. From what I understand, even in 1963 and 1964, most Americans didn't really support the March on Washington. The civil no. Rights movement. I mean, well, they, they, they were paying they attention to it and maybe they understood on some level why these folks were protesting, but they, you know, this is why King wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail, exactly. basically to complain about the white moderate and say, exactly. you keep telling me that, you know, in principle, you believe in some of the things I'm saying we need to change, right. but you also keep telling me, don't do this. Exactly. You know? I mean, what, what it, it was a really interesting time because, uh, you know, King and others uh, really um, perfected a certain kind of activist politics, movement politics that essentially courted white supremacist violence against peaceful Christian demonstrators. And when that happened, this became front page news or nightly news clips. And, you know, a significant percentage of, of uh, the American population, the white, uh, white Americans, couldn't help but be angered and, and nominally sympathetic and supportive, what, but, it, but it, it was made, they were made to feel uncomfortable. It's going too fast. Things mm -hmm. are changing too fast. So all surveys at that time, huge majorities of Americans, especially white Americans, would say, you're pushing too fast. fast you're yeah. going, you know, it was King's lament in that letter. Mm -hmm. um, so, but enough white Americans, in fact, were at least supportive of what was happening and angered by this violence, um, that that did help tip the balance in Congress and give representatives and senators at least a motivation for su supporting bills that they wouldn't have looked at mm -hmm. five years earlier. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a strange time. Yeah. It's a strange time. Um, but, but in any case, that's, that's, it's, it certainly was that movement and all the high drama, um, and sort of the, the rightness of the cause, the trans, what I thought was the transparent rightness of that cause that politicized me. There's just no question. And you have no explanation for why you and your family were the one, just randomness. <laughs> I don't know. The Nothing only, about your the, background or your personal experiences. The only thing I, I could say, and I, I have no clue if this is it, but I was a very painfully shy kid. 
At, really? Yeah, I've been making up for it for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> no, but at two, three, four, the, my parents tried to put me in nursery school, and I would cry for a, a week, and then the teachers, you know, the, the, the administrator of the nursery school would say, yeah, we can't take him. He's too disruptive. Huh. So I was, I, was, I was shy, and I was very empathetic of, yeah. of, of uh, if I would see, you know, um, uh, somebody being bullied on a playground or something like that. There was mm -hmm. just, and maybe, maybe connected to the shyness, I don't know. Yeah. But I was very, very empathetic, and still am. And so watching these events unfold in Mississippi and Alabama, et cetera, hard not to feel yeah. uh to have one's emotions mobilized in support of of what's going on yeah I, i've picked up on that even just from my interactions with you over the last few years and we haven't had extensive interactions a couple lunches a couple office meetings and right. most academics have a very detached mm -hmm. perspective and it, it's very interesting because when i first met you i thought you would be that type of academic because i know you most from the study you did in the 1970s or no, no mid-1980s i'm i'm dating you incorrectly about social ties and social activism. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a very numbers oriented study. It's got a regression right. table <laughs> and all these fancy statistics. And yeah. as an econ guy, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to be another econ. And I'm not like most econs. You are not. I'm, you are I'm not. a little different too, <laughs> but I was expecting you to be more like one of those types. And right. you're not, <laughs> you wear your emotions on your sleeve and you do. I've, I've actually been very grateful just to the genuine care you seem to show towards our activists and our cause, you know, which is a cause that, most people, even on the left, don't think too much about animals and animal rights. And to the extent you do think about it, there's usually a lot of defensiveness. And right. partly that's because of the movement's own poor messaging, in my view. But um, you've always just been very genuine and curious and empathetic to me. And I Well, I was, it. you know, as later in my career, um, opportunities to engage with activists uh became more and more important to me. Hmm. Um, we've got a whole hell of problems out there. Um, and, um, you know, you hope in doing scholarship that there might be opportunities to see if you can take things you think you learned and find ways to apply them meaningfully in the world. Yeah. So when you reached out, uh, you know, I, in general, any activist, I don't really care what movement they're in, as long mm -hmm. as they're not on the far right, sure, I would say. Yeah. Um, I've always been very happy to talk and very humble in their presence because their experiential knowledge, you know, is a richer body of empirical data, if you will, than sure. probably what I've, what I've gathered in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, in any case, then those conversations, you were so open. You guys were so um, genuinely curious uh, about ideas and what, what maybe movement scholarship or theory has to say about practical issues that activists confront every day. I was so impressed. Oh, so you. those were great conversations for me, too. Yeah, I yeah. learned from those. I, I think that... To the extent that you, you think human beings are material beings, and, and I do believe this, I don't think there's something metaphysical mm -hmm. about human consciousness or animal consciousness for that matter, there should be some ways for us to predict how we can make our lives better on, mm -hmm. on a very basic biological individual level, but also on a social level too. Yeah, so I I've, I've, you know, as long as I can remember, I've always thought there's something we can learn from, you can call it science, you can call it research, you can call it data. Yeah. 
And, and I think that it's one of the big failings of social movements and increasingly on the left, you know, um, that we don't rely as much as we should on mm -hmm. data and on evidence from, from scholarship from people like you. But um, before we jump into your scholarly career, you, you shared with, with me some stories that I'm actually kind of now interested in. You, so you were a basketball player at Occidental College. Mm -hmm. What'd you play? I, I was a, 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 a sort of power forward type. Power forward, cool. As weenie as I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're a pretty big guy. Well, 6'3". Six, 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 three? Three? Okay, so 6'3", I mean, 180 or something in sure, college. but this is not Division One, right? This was not Division One, but very, very quick. school. No, yeah. but very quickly, I, I wound up being more a shooting, <laughs> a, shooting a small player. forward type. Nice. So, okay. uh, so you're a basketball player, you're going to school, you're inspired by, by the civil rights movement and, and this thing that happens in 1963, and you go to D.C. in the spring to lobby against the draft. Um, what was that experience like? Was it what you expected? And what exactly were you doing in D.C.? Uh, we, we would make appointments with representatives or senators, and we'd okay. go, and a lot of them would turn us, you know, you, hard, getting those appointments was not easy. Sure. Um, At the federal level, it's so hard. Oh, um, but there was a lot of pressure being put on them. I mean, this was issue, kind of issue number one. Mm -hmm. I went to college in 69. I, I went, lobbied in 70 and then 71. And, you know, the, the pretty peak periods of those years. I mean, Nixon had taken over, basically seen as sort of a peace candidate, but then ramped up the war mm -hmm. in a big way. And so the, there was palpable anger over, the, over this. Um, so was and it probably the, fear too? So many people were dying. Oh, not just absolutely. people in Vietnam, U.S. citizens were dying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was it the experience I expected? No. Uh, you know, it's probably, yeah, not probably naively. I thought maybe we could make persuasive case and, you know, mm -hmm. convince these guys had their positions sort of set. So the, these meetings were really kind of just for, for show. To, for large, one of them I remember um, being lectured about how President Nixon deserved the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Wow! You know, and <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, in any case, but we worked really hard at it. Um, do, do you remember which representative that was? He thought Nixon he was a guy a from. He was a guy from whose district included Santa Cruz. That's okay. all I remember. That's a good district. I mean, well, I think it was Republican then. <laughs> was it? Had to be. This okay. guy couldn't have been a Democrat saying Nixon deserved sure. the Nobel yeah, Peace before, Prize. Uh, before all the surfers and pot smokers moved into Santa yeah, Cruz I, in the 60s I think. My so sister's we, in Santa Cruz, and that's my experience in Santa Cruz. It's all hippies yeah. surfing and smoking weed. Yeah, believe me, this is a really reliably <laughs> blue district, district now, for yeah, sure. Sure. Um, but we worked hard. We, we made connections. I, this was a, I was there with a buddy. And he and I both were working for a coalition of, cheat, uh, of, of, of peace churches on the West Coast. He went to Berkeley. I was at Occidental. Uh, we'd gone to high school together. And we, he, I think, had pulled me into this, uh, this loose coalition of peace churches, um, mm. some in Southern California, some in Northern California. Um, so we did a lot of other kinds of things while we were in D.C., besides okay. just trying to do this lobbying work. Um, but it was powerful. It was sure. a powerful experience. Um, 
And I also saw... Why, why was it powerful if you were dealing with all these frustrating legislators who were not giving you the time of day? Well, that part wasn't, wasn't particularly powerful. powerful. Well, in some ways, it was revealing of just how the the, thin our democracy yeah, the the is or something works. like that. Yeah. But it's the things you've talked about. It was... Because we would be attending meetings with other peace groups and so for anti-war groups. And, uh, you know, the, the divisions within the movement were intense. And the... Ex the, the real extreme left uh, was, I thought, pretty crazy at, really? at the time. Yeah. Um, I remember being at one meeting and um, th they got into a serious conversation about, uh, you know, is it every good revolutionary's duty to kill newborn white babies? Jesus. Because through no fault of their own, they're going to grow up to be part of an oppressive racial order. Sure. So let's think about humane ways to kill them. Wow. <laughs> and I was sort of, beam me up, Scotty. Scotty I, yeah. I need to get back to my home planet. I mean, that sounds like something an infiltrator would do. It, it I'm, I'm quite sure that yeah. the FBI was doing things like that. But no, I think there was enough legitimate... Genuine support for that sort of thing. Uh, wow. it, you know, you get into these insular yep. groups and there was people had discovered Mao. And so mm -hmm. th these were really... Um, really odd times, uh, mm -hmm. late sixties, early seventies. Um, you know, yeah. this is not the kind of pragmatic multiracial coalition of 63 and 64 that animated the, the beginnings of the new left. Mm -hmm. This is a left that's now in, in some ways unmoored yeah. and no longer linked to kind of mainstream, maybe churches, mm -hmm. um, or, or rather peace churches, left churches, or mainstream unions, or the, the, Dem the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, or something like that. They were, in fact, there was deep suspicion about the Democratic Party and unions by that point, and reasonably so, given what the Democrats had done in both 64 and 68 at their conventions. Mm -hmm. um, but it just meant that the left was increasingly unmoored from the yeah. Gra grassroots constituents they claim to be speaking for. Sure. Yeah. And that wasn't true in the civil rights movement. They hated the civil rights movement. They were rooted in the black community. Yeah. And it keeps you humble and it keeps you kind of, I think, more pra pragmatic in your, in your strategic focus. For sure. Because you, you're checked by the people you exactly. talk to who may not share your views. And, exactly. Um, yeah. So why do you think that happened? Well, again, because I think that's happening today too with the left, and I think this is one of the critiques of the left that we're yeah, I mean, one of who have these perspectives that are not grounded in what working class Americans are actually experiencing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the thing about again the George Floyd protests uh, that was so encouraging to me was that um, there was a there there was some of that pragmatic spirit seemed to be there and mm -hmm. a and a genuine openness to coalition. Mm -hmm. cross racial lines, cross class lines, age, etc. Uh, and yeah, that Mitt Romney, did you see Mitt Romney went out there? Yeah. And he had the Black Lives Matter hashtag. He was like raising his fist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some people didn't like it. I, come on. <laughs> no. This is, this is us winning. This, know, this is, is us. This yeah. is progress, you know? <laughs> and, and that kind of, you know, arm's length, uh, um, the um, Occupy movement, is is was for me a real cautionary tale and a, a, a sadly a kind of familiar one on the left so the movement bursts on the scene uh and 
all the survey data at the time suggested that right at the beginning, it had a lot of popular sympathy around the country because it seemed to be addressing issues that affected lots of Americans mm -hmm. across the political spectrum. But very quickly, you know, Occupy kind of held uh, the Democratic Party at arm's length, mainstream unions or unions in general at arm's length, you know, and got locked into a kind of a, a nothing wrong with it, but a kind of we're, we're going to do prefigurative politics. We're going to basically the encampments are going to be the change we want to make. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to fight the police to hold our encampments. And yeah. very quickly impoverished Americans are going, oh, great. Yeah. How is this going to help me? So, yeah. anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, I've seen that in, in the movements I'm working in quite a bit. And yeah. one of the struggles for us is, you know, it's, it's hard to stay grounded for two reasons as an animal rights advocate. One, because the constituents we were fighting for doesn't really have the capacity to organize for right. themselves or convey to us what's working, what's not, you know, right. like that, that campaign you did, that's a little too much or, you know, like, <laughs> or, or maybe you're not pushing hard enough right. in some other area. Um, but the other reason, and this relates to the piece you wrote in 2017 about climate activism, which I think is even more true in many ways of animal rights activism is there's no specific demographic that really owns the issue of animal rights. Right. It's like dispersed in all these random different identities and categories, which in many ways, it's a strength because you meet all these people from very, very different walks of life. Right. But other than a few fairly marginal religious groups like Jains in the right. United States, there really is no group that identifies strongly with animal rights. Right. Um, and that's been a struggle for us. And I think maybe one of the problems with the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement in the 1960s, is that they kind of got away from that grounding. They there was a demographic group in, in the case of the civil rights movement, the black church, for example, right. is something you've written about. And mm -hmm. other people like Alden Morris have written about as being incredibly influential, providing a foundation, right. a practical foundation, just to understand the needs of the people you're fighting for. Right. Um, and, and as they moved away from that towards kind of an abstract commitment to justice for its own sake, it's, it's kind of hard to make sure the activism you're doing is actually working. Yeah. <laughs> the people you're working for. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think a number of things happened late 60s, early 70s that uh, have continued to afflict the left here. Um, you, you've just mentioned one of them that I think, think is really, really on target. Two others. One I'm very sympathetic to, that is, I, I think the pragmatic new left really saw the Democratic Party as an important ally, but after... 64 and the two conventions 64 atlantic city 68 chicago didn't want to have anything done. to do yeah and in uh, 68 was obviously the chicago convention that went right. very very badly <laughs> yeah but and when people say i remember, i remember students saying or my daughter's asking well what was what was the violence about in chicago um you know and they say it was the war right um as the backdrop issue yes but that's not what the, what was what, why the anger in the streets in Chicago. It was at the travesty of what was going on inside. Hmm. Again, this is a story that Americans don't understand, and it's critically important to understand how our dysfunctional politics now, what happened in '68. Um, again, I'll t and if you don't want me to go there, I won't. No, go no, there, no. But okay. Tell the story because most I'll, people have forgotten I'll, what happened in '68, and I've forgotten to okay. some extent. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not entirely sure what you're going to say. Do it really quickly, please. So 
Um, so what, what's the, what happens that year? So Johnson is, everybody assumes he's going to be the nominee. He's going to run for a second term. Um, and he, you know, he and uh, there's only one other candidate, declared candidate, Gene McCarthy, who's a anti-war um, senator, staunch anti-war senator. He challenges Johnson, and the first primary is New Hampshire, and essentially it's a tie, no. which is pretty embarrassing for a sitting yeah, president. Yeah, for an incumbent president. And everybody, Johnson drops out of the race. Um, everybody assumes that was because of that tie. That's not. That's mm. not what happened. Bobby Kennedy had been encouraged to throw his hat in the ring initially, and he said no. McCarthy entered instead. When Bobby sees how close New Hampshire was, I think he figures, I can, I can I win this. I give the shot. Yeah. So he declares. Wow. And Johnson hated Bobby Kennedy. He hated the Kennedys in general. And I think he couldn't stand the idea of losing to Bobby Kennedy. I think he would have stayed in the race if it was he and G Eugene McCarthy. In mm -hmm. any case, that's neither here nor there. But Johnson's out. Bobby Kennedy and uh, McCarthy trade wins back and forth. They win a number of primaries. Heading into the big one, California, in June of 68, and you know that everybody knows the story, Bobby wins decisively, and it looks like he's got the momentum that's going to carry him into the convention in Chicago, and then he's shot leaving the mm -hmm. uh, hotel where the victory celebration is being held. Why did his assassin kill him? I'm forgetting. Was is, <laughs> it's this, is that, this is that weird guy. That Sirhan, people Sirhan. Are, yeah, people are not sure he actually did it now, too, right? I, What's your take on all that? I don't know don't anything. Know. <laughs> no, I, I don't, you know I don't get into theory? conspiracy theories. Okay. <laughs> I think it was Donald Trump. <laughs> it was no. Donald Trump. Uh, Donald it, Trump is like a 10-year-old boy. Exactly. was already plotting to destroy American <laughs> democracy. I will say it's it's pretty interesting, though, because I think a lot of the Kennedys agree with the conspiracy theories now, right? I they don't think know. That I honestly don't know. But I, I mean, not that obviously there's some Kennedys who it, believe other things. It's a totally puzzling assassination. Yeah. Because uh, was there even a sort declared of motive? Well, what was attributed was... Palestinian support for that's right or something. That's the biggest. Yeah, but know. it was kind of disconnected from it the was. It didn't the really seem yeah, to fit it's like, him. What does this have and, to do with? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, so how does how does the public respond to this? I mean, take us back to '68. Well, to the assassination. To the assassination. Oh, just, Bobby Kennedy's killed, and what changes in the public mood after this? Oh, well, remember Martin Luther King has been shot two months earlier. Sure. So yeah, there's never. I mean, in. I didn't think I would ever in my lifetime live through a year that had delivered so many psychic body blows as 1968 until we got to 2020. Wow. And then 2020 was kicked butt over wow. 1968. But it, it, the, the country was shell-shocked at what was happening, this string of events. Sure. In any case, so... Um, but does that empower the anti-war movement or does that weaken it? Because at this point, Bobby Kennedy is kind of the anti-war candidate versus Nixon. But versus well, Gene McCar McCarthy, McCarthy, he's kind of the pro-war candidate, right? McCarthy is anti-war. Bobby Kennedy is anti-war. Yeah. Nixon makes vague noises about we need to get out. And sure. so he benefits from some people see him as at least a kind of a peace candidate, as opposed to Hubert Humphrey, who winds mm -hmm. up as the nominee, who is the vice president, president under Johnson and is committed to the, the war. war. Yeah. Wow. But in any case, that, that's the key point. Herbert Humphrey, he didn't even, he wasn't a yeah, declared candidate. How the hell does he, he wind up, up as the nominee? That was what the anger in the streets sure. was all about. Yeah. So McCarthy goes all through the primaries. He's the only one who competes in the primaries. 
And it's very clear that the fix is in going into Chicago. Yeah. Because you go, primaries, isn't it who wins the primaries? That no. wasn't the way we nominated candidates then. Wow. The primaries were few in number and they were non-binding on the party. Wow. Okay. okay. And people don't seem to know that. Yeah, I've forgotten this story. The, I, now roots, mind, yeah. the roots of today's system are planted in the convention hall in 68. Wow. Angry anti-war activists mm -hmm. uh, from Connecticut, they go to the convention intent on convincing the rules committee to change the rules midstream to give uh, McCarthy a chance. Oh, McCarthy a chance. Okay. And they say no, but they agree to have a voice vote on the last night of the convention that if it passes, it will obligate the Democratic National Committee to uh, review the way its procedures for nominating presidential candidates and to propose more democratic remedies. Hmm. And it passes. Nobody knows what they're voting on. It's utter chaos on the floor. Everybody says, yeah, we just, we, you know, we didn't know. Yeah. But it passes. It's ruled that it passes. And the very anti-war activists who went there to try to change the rules, they immediately say, we're going to be the staff of this commission. And we're not going to work with the Democratic, the DNC at all. And we're going to get George McGovern to chair it. And he does. And over the next two years, they rewrite the rules. And the, the rules, and they're now the rules we have. Hmm. Every state must have, must, every state party organization has to have a popular means for, and a binding popular means for assigning delegates to, to a candidate, to, hmm. and to the results from your state. Caucuses and primaries. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge democratic advance over what it was before, but it's yielding increasingly illiberal, non-democratic outcomes because these are very small turnout elections, mm -hmm. the primaries and especially the caucuses, which are now favored by activists, because it amplifies the voice of the movement wings of the two parties. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about uh, Trump. Yeah. Did the Republican establishment want Trump? They didn't want anything to do with him. If the old rules applied, the Humphrey rules, Jeb Bush would have probably been the nominee, not Trump. But the, the movement wing of the Republican Party is in full, that's the party now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is unfolding in Ohio in a very strange in way. In a very strange way. Are you watching the videos oh from their debates? Oh my God. They're bizarre. <laughs> They're totally bizarre. And <laughs> They're like you got guys almost in fist fights. Oh, yeah. And J.D. Vance, a very kind of, honestly, fairly intelligent guy who I thought was a, a reasonable critic mm -hmm. of Trump in 2016 has become this <laughs> oh, no. like MAGA hat wearing, rabid conservative, oh, yeah. this was, yelling about immigration. And Ohio was sort of the poster child for kind of country club, moderate conservatism or something. Not what I'm what saying today. Yeah, it's it's utterly changing. Yeah, and it's because they have to appeal to that ten yeah. percent or twenty percent of the party that That's is right. the most rabid part of the party. So I mean, 
I take it you don't agree with the Humphrey model either. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to go back. That was a no, model. No, that was awful. Where we just decide. That was just the party bosses. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I didn't even realize and, until now. I, I, I probably had read this, but I forgot about this, that before 1968, the primaries were sort of performative. They were just they were. kind of almost like a public opinion poll. Yeah. You know, but who would you like? Right. It wasn't binding. Um, but so what's the solution then? If, we, if the, the primary system isn't working and the party boss system isn't working... You know, what do we do? There are, there are, I, I don't know exactly. There are uh, countries that uh, make it a requirement that you vote. Hmm. Now, you cannot vote and you pay a small fine. Hmm. Australia yeah. used to have this problem in spades. They just, you know, they'd get such, the turnout would be so low. And again, it, it, it favors kind of the, the extremes. Mm -hmm. um, if there's a kind of apolitical, moderate, centrist, kind of that, that part of the normal distribution of voters sure. just don't show, and you're getting sort of the extremes at, at, on either tail of the distribution or something, you worry how representative your democracy is. Sure. So they, they solved it by making it a requirement to vote. I, I'm not saying that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. We somehow have to re-empower the middle mm -hmm. of the political distribution. And um, we're, but all the trends, all the trends are in the opposite direction. Sure. So um, anyway. Um, so what was your personal experience in 1968? Because by this point, you were, what, 17, I guess, 16 mm -hmm. years old? Were you and were you already interested in anti-war activism at this point? Yeah, or you were. Oh, sure. Okay. Even and as a high school student, I was a high school student. So, uh, how do you? What do you see in '68? Is is this an experience? Oh my, oh my God! I remember. I remember pulling off when I was driving. Uh, I was on spring break uh, and hearing that King had been shot and pulled over the side of the road and just sat there on the side of the road sobbing for wow. I don't know ten minutes or something. Wow! Just uh, and then watched my. Uh, the student body president of my high school, the, you know, the, the senior class would give a gift to the school, and he proposed that it be a, a, a um, significant amount of money that would be sent to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference wow. after King died. Was this a progressive school? No. no. And so all hell broke loose with parents parading wow. around going, okay. nothing for Martin Luther Coon. Wow. And I was just, what the fuck? Sorry. Yeah, no, it's all good. This is I, a podcast. You, you know, I, I was shocked at all these, you know. Was it mainly the parents or were the kids themselves? Kids, kids were saying it too. too. Wow. So this thing died a very, you know, didn't go anywhere, yeah. obviously. Uh, and that was, that was a, a hell of a, an awakening. I grew up in a small town or, you know, in Southern California and thought it was a good, you know, good people. And started to see the uglies, <laughs> the ugly sure. side of these uh, divided country. Which we, which we were at that point. And why were people upset about it in, in Southern California? Uh, I mean... Just they thought the tactics were too extreme, or did they... I, no, I mean, you can't, you, you know, you can't grow up in this country without being profoundly touched by racism. Sure. You know, I mean, it's... So the level of, of racism, popular racism... Um, even in a place like Southern California, was very high. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fiction that, oh, that's all about the South. Mm -hmm. um, you know, George Wallace made it very clear when he challenged um, 
Johnson also in 64. Uh, sorry, not also, we were talking about 68. In 64, Wallace challenges Johnson. Mm-hmm. And Johnson's at the height of his popularity in 64. Yeah. He's wrapped himself in the mantle of our late martyred president and, and so forth yep. and so on. And Wallace says, I'm going to challenge you for the Democratic nomination. And everybody goes. <clears throat> and the first, uh, he, he, he challenged him in three primaries. The first was Wisconsin. Hmm. And he got... I forget a third of the vote in, and a a pretty serious labor democratic state. Remember, this is not all of Wisconsin voting. These are democratic registered democratic voters. Sure. And a third of them vote Vote for this arch segregationist, uh, governor of Alabama. Yeah. What was his slogan of something like segregation today? Segregation segregation now, segregation tomorrow, 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 segregation forever. forever. Yeah. And I'm going to stand in the school house door to block, the admission, you know. Yeah. Uh, they then go on to Indiana, and the party's now kind of freaked out, and they pull out all the big guns, and I think he still gets like 30% in yeah. Indiana. Um, and then he gets 48% in Maryland. Wow. In Maryland. In Maryland. I didn't realize his support was so high. Oh, yeah. He's like a footnote in history. I've, I have heard about that campaign, but it's, I feel like the way it's written about, well, it's, it's like, a, oh, this is kind of a ridiculous thing, and, you know, look at this silly thing that George Wallace did. But it sounded like he was kind of, Almost Trump before oh. Trump. <laughs> well, and again, what it that sh- demonstrating that level of support for white supremacy in northern yeah, states Wisconsin. in the Democratic Party, yeah, um, is what I, it, it really nobody missed the significance of this. Mm-hmm. So Johnson's c- courage in pushing the Democratic Party to embrace the need civil for civil rights, rights yeah. reform. Uh, and he does it knowing that it's going to, it might well cost the party the solid South. Sure. It did. And it did. Yeah. And the Republicans immediately start going, oh my God, we've been the out party for 40 years, but if we can, um, uh, you know, essentially uh, recruit uh white racial conservatives around the country and yeah. certainly in the South, we can remake ourselves. And Nixon runs on what he calls his Southern strategy and he wins. Yeah. And the Republican party has been tracking in that direction ever since. ever since. Yeah. I think Johnson was one of the best presidents in American history. I think he gets enough credit for what he did. I don't think he does he was, either. I don't know if this is true, but I've read in from reputable sources. Do you know the story about him with a snake in the back of his trunk? What? You never heard this? No, I don't think so. This is making me think maybe it's apocryphal. It's like just something made up, but it was on NBC News. Oh, no, so, I don't you know. know. Go ahead. So the story is, this is not in 1964 when he signed the Civil Rights Act. Right. And just to give everyone context, King and Johnson were both incredibly brave in working together because King was facing a lot of pressure on the left. Mm-hmm. This is a Southern senator yeah. you know, from the, the Democratic Party. Was Absolutely. The party that was doing a lot of the awful things to black people. And and King is saying, no, I'm going to work with him. You know, he, he he's... He's a Southern senator mm-hmm. from a state that has done terrible things to my people, right. but we still have to work together to get this legislation passed. But right. Johnson was incredibly courageous too, because totally. the story that, that I've read, and I've actually repeated this, so I hope mm-hmm. I haven't been reporting, <laughs> repeating disinformation, is that um, probably like in the 50s, maybe in the 40s, when mm-hmm. he was a young politician, still very bought into segregation and the idea that you know we have right. to protect ourselves from these dangerous black people. Right. He had a snake in his trunk, like a living snake, because he believed 
in the stereotype and the conspiracy theory that black people are scared of snakes. And if you tell them that you have a snake in your trunk, they'll run away. Unbelievable. You've never heard this? No, I've never heard that. It might be false. <laughs> I'm, no, I could also imagine yeah. it being true. No, I, but the, again, I, I've read this from multiple reputable sources. And when I first read it, like, I think I first heard it in like, a podcast or something. I was like, that can't be true. And then I looked it up and I was like, there seem to be reputable sources repeating this. But, Wouldn't be surprised. But, and this is the man who ultimately signs the Civil Rights Act with right. Martin Luther King Jr. present. Martin Luther King Jr., the person who is a lawbreaker who had been described as the most dangerous man in America right. by the FBI, who had been arrested dozens of times right. and, and was ultimately assassinated. And Johnson worked with him. Totally. You know? And it did kind of ruin his political career and destroy the stranglehold the Democratic Party had over the South. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that, that is courage. It is. He, and I think he knew that was going to happen, too. So it's like if you think greatness comes from being willing to do the right thing, even when it comes at an incredible cost— then Johnson is one of our best presidents. I totally agree with that assessment, actually. Um, It's not a popular assessment necessarily, but Kennedy gets a lot of credit for being pro-civil rights, but he was nowhere nowhere near as as proactive and courageous as Johnson was. Um, I think Johnson... better looking, though. There is one (laughs) thing I will say that, uh, again, this is not typically understood, we got the victories of the civil rights movement, legislative victories, and even the Supreme Court cases, um, in the context of the Cold War. The Cold War was hugely important in more or less forcing the American state in that moment to put its racial house in order, at least Mm -hmm. in some kind of order. Um, You know, American-style racism was such a foreign policy liability in the context of a global struggle for influence with the Soviet Union. And that is what pressured both Kennedy and Johnson to act when they really didn't want to. Interesting. But Kennedy always did about as little as he had to. And can you unpack that a little more? Can you explain how that affected the foreign policy, affected domestic politics? Like what specifically was the Soviet Union saying or doing that was causing the Soviet Union exploited. Remember, we're locked into this Cold War struggle between the two superpowers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an argument over whose system is more just. Mm -hmm. And we're going, the communists, oh my God, you don't want to go communist. And they're saying, this is the country you want to follow? So anytime there was a celebrated, publicized instance of white violence against blacks, that was front page news, not just in the United States, all around the globe. Oh, wow. And again, the way that policymakers added up this struggle, it's like we need to recruit as many countries from around the world to be on our team. Yeah. So that's why we go into Vietnam, because communists may get a toehold there. Yeah. So we're competing literally for the loyalties of, all, of countries all around the globe. They all matter in this global struggle. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So... You read the Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education. They say they actually refer to the fact that this is hurting us in, ter- in terms of our international representative, uh, represent, uh, reputation. Interesting. And is, is uh, calling into question America's uh, commitment to democracy. Wow. So this is explicitly part of the court decisions. So there's a recognition by the Supreme Court and by Congress and by presidents that, you know, we, we need to embrace 
civil rights reform to, 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 to address the single most important policy goal during this period, which is this yeah. conflict with the Soviet Union. Yeah, which Critical. is an existential threat. I mean, this T- is at also the same time as the Cuban Missile Crisis where the Soviet Union is threatening to put nuclear weapons in Cuba that could destroy, I mean, I think they could reach D.C. from there, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so they could have absolutely. destroyed our entire capital. That, with one missile. Just a sidebar, a little parenthetical aside, I'm, a, I'm an 11-year-old kid who loves rock and roll, and I, I would listen to the radio. <laughs> but they have, they'd have a news program for three minutes, you know, mm-hmm. every hour. When it came on, I would race and turn it off in 1962 because I was so afraid. Wow. My parents went to some friends who built a fallout shelter. Wow. And said, would, could there be room there for us? No. Yeah. That was the end of the friendship. This stuff was real. Yeah. And it... So it was the defining issue of the day, and the civil, the genius of the civil rights movement was to essentially create these yeah. um, disruptions of public order, mm-hmm. the, 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 the white supremacist violence, which would then attract media attention, which would then put these um, images all over the globe yeah. and put more pressure on the, on, on the federal government to put, yeah. put the racial house in order. Um, hugely important. So I give Johnson a lot of courage because he finally just went, you know what? We have to do it. It's right. Mm-hmm. But there There's was also, a foreign yeah, policy a for yeah. push to do it. Yeah. You know, that I'm sure you know this and probably people have heard this, especially in the context of Russia and Ukraine invasion. That's that same rhetoric is you today. Yep. And I had a really weird personal experience actually in China when I was doing an investigation of dog meat. It's very difficult trip because I got arrested, charged oh. with espionage, oh investigating dog meat traders. But one of the, just this, a really funny moment is um, a- after most of the most terrible things had ended and we were driving back to Guangzhou to get shipped out because we ultimately did get three dogs and it's a longer story that I won't tell you now. But I'm, I'm driving this guy from Yuling all the way to Guangzhou, which is, I, I don't remember how long. It's a long drive, six, seven hours. Okay. And he's our driver. And, and so you get to know a guy a little bit because he got three dogs in the back. Actually, was it this drive? It might have been the year before that I had the conversation okay. with the cab driver. By the way, it was a long drive. I think it was the year before. It was before we had actually done the investigation. I was just scouting the year before. Um, and so I'm talking to him. And, you know, this is just some ordinary guy who drives cars. And so uh, this is around the time, I think, 2015, 2016, where Black Lives Matter has become a little bit of an issue. Okay. But not a huge issue yet. Right. Not George Floyd level, but still a significant yeah. issue. And uh, when, I, when I told him I'm American and I'm going back to America, he was like, oh, you must be living in fear there, you know? Like, it must be so scary for you as a Chinese person. And, and, you know, there's some truth to that. There is racism in the United States, but I was just blown away by how the Chinese government had propagandized people to think that it is scary and dangerous for me as a Chinese person. I'm like, no, let me tell you, I feel a lot safer (laughs) in the United States than I do here. This place is a dangerous place, and you think you've got freedom here? Let me let me let me show you what Google is. Let me yeah. take you on Facebook and see what I'm allowed to say and do. I mean, I, I can condemn my president. There's all these things, and you know, there's some racism. I personally experienced it, right. but I still feel a lot safer in the United States than I do here. But yeah. they did such an effective job wow. of convincing their people that if you're a Chinese person, you go to America, even today. You know, this is in 2016. They're going to beat you up. They're going to kill you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to oh accuse you of all these things. And it, and it is because we've made mistakes. Yeah. You know, like with the Chinese, especially. Oh, there have been absolutely. a number of scientists who've been arrested recently. You go back to, um, I don't know if you know the Wen Ho Lee case where yeah. the New York Times was you know, prosecuting this guy in the court of public opinion. It turns out he did nothing. Right. And it's just this, this racial specter. And 
you know, part of me thinks it's it's because of institutional corruption, mm-hmm. and, and it probably is. Yeah. There are institutions that have behaved badly in all these cases, whether it's a court system, mm-hmm. law enforcement, the FBI, the federal government. Right. But part of me worries, and this is the part of me that's more pessimistic, that racial conflict is something that's just deeply embedded in the human psyche. I mean, and I think it is. You think it is? I think it is. I, th- Doesn't th- that make th- you hopeless? Th- this, no, <laughs> I mean, I hope that's not the case. No. You think uh, it is? Um, yeah, this, this would be a much longer, longer discussion. Um, uh, I have a, a book manuscript, which I will never finish, but it's, it's um, the working title was something like The Existential Functions of the Social. Mm-hmm. And uh, l- let's see if I could do two minutes that would at least give you a flavor of it. Um, you know, anatomically modern humans have been around maybe 200,000 years, something like that. But for like the first maybe 150,000 of those years, there's almost nothing in the archaeological record that looks like us, Hmm. even though they're anatomically modern. What do you mean by by looks like us? Ritual burial art. Oh, I see. Okay, so culture and just... Manifestations of okay, and it's and then it explodes, Hmm. and people are really trying to. I mean, this has been a big issue. What happened? Some argue we just haven't found the evidence. It must have always been there. Yeah, as soon as we become anatomically modern, I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, And this is not my area of expertise, but I love this stuff. Sure. And to me, any social scientist ought to care deeply about what the nature of the species is. Yeah, underneath it. And so 50,000 years ago, it explodes, ritual, burial, art, etc. And what I'm saying is prior to that time, uh, we're no different than any other species. That is, um, the principal function of the social in our primate species is survival. Mm -hmm. And at 50,000 years another function becomes critically important. That's the existential function of the social. People are burdened by nagging, am I alone? Does this mean anything? So we're now telling stories. We're, we're creating rituals that assure us that we're important and you weren't alone and we're treating your body and, and we have art. And, seriously, I mean, that... so. And some have said, yeah, at that point, we step outside of biology and we enter history. Hmm. And the species is really powerfully driven by a need to construct self-serving accounts that reassure our group that we are not alone and we are important. Hmm. And conflict in relation to to another group is one of the most powerfully a powerful ways to reinforce the sense of solidarity mm-hmm. within a group. Yeah. Um, sorry, you know, the Nazi movement, people joined it and felt incredibly important. And look at yeah. the amazing cosmic, you know, m- movement we're a part of. Yeah. Us, them conflict really is a, is a power, is a very meaningful thing. That's what's, that's, that's one of the things that scares me. Yeah. Does it have to be organized around race, though? No, 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 no. It, it can be, be. Uh, any number of any okay. any number of distinctions can can serve the purpose, but us them, yeah, winds up being. Uh, for, for instance, really interesting 
data, this is, most people know this, suicide rates drop dramatically during wartime. Hmm. You would think, oh my God, the despair, the trauma. Yeah, no, but. You know, we're, you know, we're, this is yeah. a just war. We're, I'm part of, I'm, I'm buying bonds. I'm, <laughs> you know, saving materials. Sure. You're part of something bigger than you. Yeah. you Which is so weird because material conditions decline dramatically. People right. are starving. They don't have resources. They lose their jobs. Right. Look what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. The sense I, of I solidarity within that country yeah. is crazy given what, sure? they're, what they're being subjected to. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a worrisome thing when you believe sort of wired into the species is the need to construct these self-serving accounts. And oftentimes you do it in relationship to, to some another. other group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would like to think that we can evolve beyond, if not evolve beyond that dynamic, at least create an other that is just a concept that's bad, right? You know, like suffering is the other global or, warming or global Let's, warming is the other or, or even just injustice, Yeah, you know, people mistreating others because yeah. they're weaker. That's the other. And yeah. so we, and not even identifying a particular demographic with that group. Cause I think that's dangerous. I mean, right. my family's history, cause we were on the wrong side of the Chinese civil war in 1949. Oh. And, or I should say we were on the losing side, not the wrong side, not the wrong side, the I losing think, side. Well, I mean, I actually think we were on the wrong side ethically in many ways too. Cause right. my, my family was, you know, they were, fairly elite folks in mm -hmm. 1949. My grandfather was like a dean at a university. And it wow. was a terrible life for a peasant in China in 1949. Mm -hmm. You know why Mao won? Because yeah. the people were being treated like crap. So mm -hmm. they rose up and fought back and killed the people who were oppressing them. But you'd like to think that there had been a way for Mao to do that, saying, hey, there, there are these really bad systems and a lot of people are causing a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. But it's not them as individual human beings. Right. It's like we just need to kind of fix the the concepts and the culture, and let's bring them in. <laughs> you know, like, well, and again, it, after the, the war is over, instead the, of killing them all. You know, the George Floyd protests. Uh, lots of people felt more connected and um, to that broadly inclusive. So not all movements succeed because they demonize another. Mm -hmm. uh, but but it's a it's a, it, it's a slippery slope. Um, and, uh, you know, part of what movement leaders are trying to do is mobilize emotion. And one of the most powerful combinations of emotions is anger, um, and sort of anger and hope. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, to, to, to mobilize anger, one of the ways you do it is to demonize your opponent mm -hmm. and make people really see red when they think about white supremacists or they think about blacks or whatever. For sure. So yeah. anyway, and, and a country's history matters huge in what stories are especially resonant or salient. And yeah. we are such a thoroughly racist country in our history. Mm-hmm not just with respect to African-Americans, but Chinese, Japanese, et cetera, that we've got a stock of racist stories that can be resurrected in new form to mobilize anger, to mobilize people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, agreed. With respect to my people, or really any people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, so this combination of anger and hope makes me think of a concept that I think you coined called cognitive liberation. Can you just... Tell us what is cognitive liberation and why does it matter for people who are interested in trying to change the world? Um, yeah, it's not a great, I, I, it's not a great term. It's too really? academies, but, but I think what's <laughs> underneath it Didn't is. Didn't you come up with it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I thought it was really interesting the first time well, I read it. It helped me understand I think what the social concept, movements are trying to do. I think yeah. the concept is important. A good I'm just okay. saying okay. The, just term, the term is bad. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, but real, really, I think that uh, it's, it's very hard to get movements off the ground absent some significant transformation of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I really mean by that is... Uh, people have to come to see an issue um, as, uh, or some aspect of their life, um, as illegitimate or unjust, um, and critically subject to change Mm -hmm. through group action. It's the anger and the hope. It's the anger and the hope. Um, You know, there... Uh, there are other m- emotions that can mobilize sometimes fear the threat of some we're going to put a uh, drug treatment center next to your neighborhood or something you know or a toxic waste dump or something and people can be fearful of that and and but come to hope that they can stop it mm-hmm. so that can that can work too but fear can also demobilize yeah. can really paralyze people because it's so it's a close cousin to a sense of um powerlessness sure right yeah so anger and hope have have always been a pretty powerful combination but but in any case um movements depend in part on a significant change in the consciousness of a, a reasonable group of people yeah. so that there's some critical mass there. Um, you know, African-Americans never, I think, at least the majority of African-Americans, never had problems with the unjust or illegitimate part of that equation. Mm-hmm. But subject to change through our actions. Yeah, that's the harder part. You know, and partly what shifted in the post-war period was partly of the Cold War, so that politicians were now at least rhetorically embracing the need for civil rights change mm-hmm. to uh, counter the Soviet threat. And civil rights leaders were savvy about that. And you see survey data from that period with blacks being increasingly more optimistic about the prospects of change. Oh, interesting. So this is through the 1950s and 60s? Wow. I'm going to ask you for that. That's right. pretty I, fascinating. I could dig around and find it. Please. Yeah, so... Um, I'm actually going to play a comment. I, I told some of our, our listeners that I'm going to be speaking to you because I think this comment, it's a short question by a good friend of mine who's an activist in New York. Um, I'm just going to play this because I think the, I, this concept of cognitive liberation, which you don't like very much, and <laughs> that we have to feel the anger and feel the hope, uh, with respect to the animal rights movement and the climate movement to a certain extent, especially the first side of the equation, sometimes feels hard. And, but let me, let me just let Donnie speak for himself. Sure. My name is Donnie Moss. I'm an animal rights campaigner in New York City. My question is, can the lessons learned from other social justice movements be applied to the animal rights movement when you consider the fact that the animal rights movement is fighting for individuals other than ourselves and is fighting for individuals of another species? And I think this also relates to the, the piece you wrote in 2017 about climate change, right. that there isn't a natural demographic that feels anger about this because 
climate change to a certain extent, there are some people being affected today, but really mm-hmm. it's future generations, right. it's people in other countries. I mean, increasingly in California especially, that's changing obviously, but by the time it changes to the point that most Americans are feeling the mm-hmm. direct consequences of climate change on a daily basis and they're feeling directly hurt by it, it's probably going to be too late. So, you know, to, to follow up on Donnie's question, is it possible for movements to develop ownership in ways that allow you to instill that sense of anger that is necessary to achieve cognitive liberation? It's a, it's a really great question and a really tricky one, I think. But just such a smart, such a smart question and critical question for movements that are organizing on behalf of others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think the answer is yes, but it's, but, but that poses an unusual challenge. If you organize a a rights movement on behalf, I mean, you're, if a movement arises among African Americans or you're, you know, it's, it's your grassroots base that understands the issue and, you know, you're trying to, to mobilize. Yeah. You don't have to explain it to them or... Tell a good story. You just no. say this is an issue, and they all get it. Right. <laughs> it's like there's no there's no explanation that's needed there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and and you know routinely in American history, you, you sort of white supremacists could be can be counted on to engage in egregious violence, which can be pointed to to again mobilize anger. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some weird way that's an asset for the movement mm-hmm. and and again king's the the major civil rights campaigns that king orchestrated really were about okay let's pick a location where we're likely to get that response yeah um that's kind of why they chose birmingham that right? is definitely yeah. why they chose birmingham um and so think of the challenge when that we're talking about two two perceptions uh, one is that some aspect of life is unjust or illegitimate. And you're trying now to talk about, you're trying to, to make um, uh, citizens, people aware of the injustice and illegitimacy of animal practices with regards to animals. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's a, for many people, that's not going to be sort of at the top of their salience list when they're sure. thinking of issues. But so that's a challenge. And then and secondly, then you have to also convince them that we can change this through collective action of some sort. Another tough, another tough thing to pull off. I think part of the what you're trying to do is to reframe the issue you care about in a way that resonates with an identity that's important Mm -hmm. to those like uh, dog lovers. Mm -hmm. Right. Might, might even be hunters in some weird way or yeah. something who care about the majesty of that or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, Joe Rogan talks about factory farming more than almost anybody I know, which is really weird because he's is, a hunter. I know. And he talks about factory farming all the time. It's like, really? I know. <laughs> but, but again, that's... It's, you're I, right. It's weird. It is. Um, or maybe you, you, this be, you, you reframe it in part as an environmental issue, understanding that maybe the, the numbers of people out there who define themselves as really strong environmentalists is larger, larger than the number of animal rights activists. Yeah, for sure. 
there's you can even frame it in a faith-based way, right? Mm-hmm. Because God made all these creatures, and oh, look what we're doing! This is this is this is really um, an, a horrible injustice mm-hmm. um, to the natural environment. That you know, I think that's partly what you try to do, yeah. um, it, but it's not that easy. easy. Yeah. Um, with respect to ch- Climate change, you know, convincing people there's something wrong, I think that's getting easier and easier because the effects are being seen. But this is a tricky one because if it's like, yeah, fires are burning everywhere. Including right here, right? I Probably near your house. (laughs) We're in this house because we had to evacuate. Seriously? Yeah, twice in the four years we lived in a house in Glen Ellen, which is only about 20 minutes away. That's terrifying. Yeah, it was it was seriously terrifying. Yeah, the flames coming directly at the house and neighbors on all sides burned. Jesus, for the first time. This is 2017. Wow. In any case, when it seems like oh my God, the, it's already tipped, and the effects are all around us, then all of this can. It's hard to get people to feel hope. They may by now get the threat part of this, sure. right? Yeah. But what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know, um, you just feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the issue. Yeah. So these are really tricky and they're critically important because if you can't get a significant number of people to buy into into these two perceptions, you can't get action. Yeah. In some ways they're contradictory too, because the more you feel despair about the terrible thing that's happening in our society, the wildfires, the control the fossil fuel companies have, the more you in many ways are feel are inclined powerless. to feel powerless and say totally. like, wow, the world sucks. You That's know, what right. do I do about this? I mean, so actually this is a good segue into a, another question that was sent to me by Rebecca Corby, who's a, an amazing supporter of ours. And when you look at the civil rights movement, what was the turning point from your perspective? What was the point, or was there a point where you either as a scholar who's looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, mm-hmm. or even as someone who was watching it, you know, as a teenager, mm-hmm. Where you thought, okay, this is the point. We've achieved cognitive liberation. We've got that perfect mix of Mm -hmm. anger and hope that is going to turn the tides of history. I think it's the sit-in movement in 1960. Because the canonical story we tell is Montgomery and Rosa Parks. And that was a a huge, incredibly important, no question about it. But... Uh, what what is wrong? And so, not disputing that part of the story, the canonical story of the civil rights movement, but typically it says, "Oh, and once once we had the bus boycott and Martin Luther King kind of emerged as a leader, first of the boycott, but now was there as to lead the larger movement." You know, it was just an upward march towards increased equality. Hmm. It's just not right. Um, again. I have empirical data. <laughs> My dissertation was um, uh, a study of the emergence, development, decline of the civil rights movement, the heyday of the civil rights movement. And at least some of the data I used was I literally read every last page of every issue of the New York Times from 1948 to 1970. Wow. And I was looking for any account of civil rights-related activity um, and was coding it and creating times, a time series data set on mm-hmm. the movement. And what, if I had the, if I had it in front of me, there's, let's see, we're, we're over here, it's 1948, we're headed to 1970 over here. 
and there's virtually nothing for six years, seven years, and then there's a little teeny blip in 56, 57, which is Montgomery, uh, yeah, the Montgomery bus boycott. And then it just goes back, it's flat hmm. for another four years. In response to Montgomery, and especially the Supreme Court decision, the Brown v. Board um, educate, Supreme Court decision in 54, there's this massive resistance in, in the white South. Mm -hmm. Flood of legislation, outlaws civil rights organizations, people who are members of the NAACP are fired from, public, from jobs. Wow. The Klan gets active again. There's a new group called the White Citizens Council mm -hmm. that are formed. And it is a brutal period, the late 50s. And the movement is, is moribund at that point. It's not that we're marching for, on from Montgomery. It's going, boop. And there's a victory, no yeah. question. And then it's flat. And then the lunch counter sit-ins, hmm. which start with four freshmen mm -hmm. in a dorm at North Carolina A&T in Greensboro going, we should do something. Nothing's happening. You know, there was Montgomery and nothing. What was King doing during, during, during this time period? You know, he was active, but... Just nothing catching on. Nothing. Yeah. No big campaigns. No big campaigns. Um, there were some other attempted bus boycotts in mm -hmm. other cities. Um, I think he was mostly um, being a minister. Minister, yeah. Um, and then the lunch counter sit-ins, and that's a much more substantial burst. Uh, peak of movement activity, and it revitalizes all the mainstream civil rights groups. SCLC, SNCC grows out of the, um, the sit-ins. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be just a coordinating committee, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They're going to coordinate the lunch counter sit-ins, and they become a permanent organization, and easily the most radical, most creative, most inventive of the groups. But there's King's Organization, SCLC, there's NAACP, there's CORE, mm -hmm. there's the Urban League. All of them, uh, they engage in fundraising. And there's now the country, at least a segment of the country, is sufficiently sympathetic that donations to these organizations yeah, really skyrocket. Um, and Kennedy's elected. And Kennedy, at least rhetorically, is more embraces the need for civil rights reform more than Eisenhower did. Mm -hmm. And there's this youth and vitality in the White House. And so we are now kicked, you know, the 60s have kicked off. Um, and I think then we are really are talking about a key turning point. You know, I think Kennedy's assassination oddly helps the movement. Hmm. Because Kennedy was going to have real trouble. I, I think Actually he was in the fight of, fight of his life getting reelected, mm -hmm. and he would have to make nice to the southern wing of his party. Interesting. Wow. And so he's no longer there, and he was cautious at best about how to embrace the need for civil rights reform. Johnson comes in, and he's a southerner. He understands the issue, and he's very popular initially. Mm -hmm. We've been through this. And he has, he, he's a more courageous, principled politician than Kennedy ever was. Wow. Interesting. And so I think that's another little mini turning point. So what else? I mean, this might actually dovetail into the, another domain of movement scholarship that you're very um, known for, political opportunity theory. But was that the distinction between 1955 and 1960? What was, what led to the sit-ins? It's actually... 
this is the first time I've heard this. I didn't realize that there was so much more media attention to the sit-ins. Because when we look back through history, if anything, I think it's actually the opposite. You know, we think of Rosa Parks as like the key moment, not the 1960s. I mean, the sit-ins obviously get right. attention. We talk about that. You read about that in middle school history. But the thing that we really remember is Rosa Parks and King and, and Montgomery. Well, that's what I'm saying. These yeah. We love telling the stories. stories and that's a, that's, a, that's a really dramatic story it is a about, dramatic story. you know, a woman, woman. who yeah. w refused to give up her seat. Yeah. Um, it's a harder, the sit-ins are a harder story to tell because they don't, there isn't a protagonist. There yeah, isn't a single individual. Yeah. Um, and they're happening everywhere. But the impacts from that were much greater there, than from yeah. Montgomery. But how do you explain it? Why do you think, why did not the bus boycotts that sprang forward after Rosa Parks, why well, did they not generate that sort of power? And why did the sit-ins well, start creating power? I think, I think, again, part of it is because the South, really, there is this extraordinary resistance okay, in the South. The and so, um, yes, there was a, a, a real elation in the black community after Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And then there's this flood of legislation that cripples NAACP chapters in the region. And there's an uptick in white racist violence. And, you know, where do you go from that? What they did is what they knew. That is, there were other bus boycotts in other smallish southern cities with mixed results. And that's mm -hmm. the one thing that sort of carried on a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, some activity got put, because the Supreme Court had ruled segregation is illegal, is unconstitutional, and the second Supreme Court decision roughly a year later was uh, to um, ordered school districts in the South to proceed with all deliberate speed. So some level of activism went to getting students into previously white schools. So there's the uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, the famous pictures. Right. From, yeah, the, the, so, the little girls trying to go to school, right. and there's and, the National Guard protecting her from the racist or right. like marauding this little girl. Yeah. So, yeah. so that is, it's not that nothing is it's going happening. on. But again, the, these data really don't lie. It, it, yeah. The line is flat for 57, 8, 9, and then 60 explodes mm -hmm. with the sit-ins. And part of it is that, you know, the sit-ins created this opportunity to engage in activism everywhere. everywhere. Wow. It wasn't just yeah. little, you know, I'm yeah. sorry, it wasn't just Montgomery. And I got to give, I mean, you know, uh, people say to me, oh, so student activism, that started in like 64 at Berkeley with the free speech movement. I go, mm. say what? How about 1960? Yeah. Uh, the estimate is that probably two-thirds of those students, black students at traditionally black colleges, were active. Wow. It was two just... Two-thirds? Two-thirds. That's unbelievable. Yeah. You can't... I mean, but you, it, it literally was happening everywhere. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going down to the lunch counter. Sure. But it's, I'm involved, I'm raising money, I'm getting bail yeah. funds, etc. How did they do that? I, I think it just, it diffused like crazy. It just became a part of the culture. It, it did. Was, and, yeah. and again, this is what you want to talk about. When does a cognitive shift, shift occur? Yeah. When those four guys sat in and it was generated headlines, that word spread, spread everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And there's data that actually shows that it diffuses for about the first five weeks of that movement. It's diffusing... Uh, geographically, that is, it's it's places are closer to Greensboro, and some of them are basketball schools. You play in basketball, sure. 
So it's spreading it's out from North virus. Carolina. And then after about five weeks, it can be almost anywhere. There's yeah. no real relationship between time from yeah. that initial and distance from Greensboro. But for the first five weeks, it really is spreading out along lines of probably face-to-face -face connection between students at proximate schools. Sure. Yeah. So it just explodes. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, two-thirds is such an extraordinary measure because, I mean, yeah. so I'll just give you by way of comparison within the organization I'm most known for working with Direct Action Everywhere. We have members and right. we put calls to action out, even just for our local membership in our chapter. And even for people who have already signed up to take action, when we get like a 50% hit rate, mm -hmm. that's a strong, that's extraordinarily high. That's extraordinary. It's just like, oh my gosh, 50% of people did something. They clicked on an email. Are they, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, it's, we're all through the moon. Oh, it's the true. The idea that two thirds of people who aren't even activists, they're just students, are participating in a campaign is just unbelievable. Yeah. The other statistic that shocked me when I first heard it, which I may have even heard this from your work, and I might be getting the exact number wrong, okay. but I heard that around 80% of the black people in Montgomery participated in the boycott. Yeah, which is I think it's even shockingly high. high. Well, shockingly high. What it means is they did not ride the buses. Okay, doesn't mean that they necessarily were out marching, marching or something. Marching and petitioning. I think the number is even higher. I thought really? it was closer to ninety. That's an estimate. Okay, but they have numbers on you know the black ridership. In fact, the the bus line was incredibly dependent on black riders. Yeah, and so they just almost went bankrupt. They right? did because, go bankrupt. Oh, they did go bankrupt. They privatized it <laughs> they privatized at some it. point, and then yeah. money could be pumped in. Sure. Um, but you know, again, we talk about, okay, somebody, there may be widespread agreement that some aspect of one's life is unjust or illegitimate, but the hope piece of it is the tricky part. Yeah. Something like the sit-in movement, boom, I can do that. And it's happening everywhere. everywhere. Then you have tremendous hope. There yeah. is this sense that, oh my God, yeah. we are a force. We're making history. Sure. That the George Floyd protests had that quality too. Sure. Yeah, people felt like they're part of the change. Yep. It wasn't just we're protesting this terrible thing, but right. something good is happening in yep. society, and I can be a part of it. I'm going to play one last idea clip. It's very appropriate given what we were just discussing. But you know, I think there, there uh, have been so many movements through American history, the anti-war movement. Hello, my name is Mario. You stop. There have been so many movements through American history, the, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, where I think student campuses have been such an important driving force. And... Um, we were actually talking about this before we started this podcast. My sense over the last couple of years is university campuses have not been important agents for change in a lot of these movements. And I, I'm going to let this listener just chime okay. in with their question real quick. Hello, my name is Mario, first time participant. Uh, very happy to have found this forum. Uh, my question is, is how do students today in particular, but everyone embrace the volunteerism, the ability to pull up one stake uh, in the system that existed in the sixties uh, and, and volunteer to create something new today. Uh, the question goes on, but I think that's mm -hmm. the key, the key part of it. And to me, the, the things that I'm seeing in university campuses that seem to be deterring activism are, are one, um, a sense of cynicism <laughs> about the world, that there's just so little trust in anything. And we talked about distrust of mm -hmm. governmental institutions and, and parties and corporations, obviously, but even distrust in each other. Mm -hmm. I feel like there isn't a lot of social capital or trust on campuses right now. But the other is fear. I think students are just afraid. Totally. I mean, climate anxiety is a real thing. Um, certainly people of color are afraid. 
you know, I, I, I know Asian students at Berkeley who will not go out on the streets and Berkeley's not a particularly dangerous neighbor, to be mm-hmm. honest, without other people, right. because they're afraid of getting assaulted for being API. And so I, I guess the question is, you know, young people and students have been such an important driving force. They're also fairly new to life. I mean, they're in their eight, late teens, early twenties. How did these movements and how would you recommend either student organizers or active students that are trying to support student organizers get back to that state that, for example, the, was it North Carolina Tech? Mm-hmm. What was the university? North Carolina, North Carolina A&T. North Carolina A&T convinced two-thirds of the students to participate in a sit-in campaign that was very risky. Well, again, it's interesting that... Th- Uh, the sit-ins were played out against the backdrop of rising optimism within the black community generally. Hmm. Um, And it's just unmistakable in the data um, that, you know, partly because of a string of Supreme Court decisions, because Eisenhower actually sent troops into Little Rock. Um, I mean, prior to Harry Truman, uh, you'd, you'd have to go back to Ulysses Grant and Lincoln to find presidents who embraced the issue of race. Hmm. Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, four-term president, absolutely never came out four square for civil rights reform of any sort. Hmm. He was lobbied just repeatedly by sort of the liberal wing of his party to, in one of his radio addresses, just endorse the idea of an anti-lynching bill. And he wouldn't. Wow. Because he wasn't in the Cold War. Wow. He wasn't yeah. in the Cold War. Um, it, you shift. When, when Truman takes office, when Roosevelt dies, we're now in the Cold War context. And the, again, the costs of American-style racism to America's chief foreign policy issue, you know, conflict with the Soviet Union— is becomes apparent very quickly. And Truman embraces the need for civil rights reform, Hmm. even though he's not very popular and he's got to run. He's not an elected president. He stepped into Roosevelt's shoes. He's going to have to run in 48. And it looks like he's going to piss off the Southern wing of his party. And in fact, the Southern wing of the party does criticize him. Strom Thurmond Hmm. runs runs for president on the state's rights party, a third party, and takes five deep south states. You know, this famous, have you ever seen this famous picture of Truman holding up a picture of the Chicago Tribune? And the headline says, says, Truman loses. Truman loses. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody assumed by embracing, by simply saying the need for civil rights reform, that he's going to lose. Yeah. And the big thing he did was integrate the army, right? Is that the big thing? He did a bunch of things. He also okay. created a national commission that met for 18 months to, uh, to document racism and racial discrimination in the United States. Yeah. He never followed it up with any plan of action. But this, this was breaking ground. This was yeah. nobody had essentially the Cold War re-nationalized race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it wasn't that the scales had fallen from our eyes, yeah. that we were being we were forced, kind of forced to confront this yeah. because of our, our foreign policy uh, preferences or foreign policy. Yeah. So, um, and this is all, none of this is lost on African-Americans. Something has shifted. In fact, when I first was working on my dissertation, 
again, this book on the origin and development of the civil rights movement, I had this opportunity to meet one of the absolute most extraordinary activists in the history of American activism, Ella Baker. Mm. She just, this extraordinary woman who runs through the history of sort of, um, sort of the African-American freedom struggle uh, from the teens through the 70s. And just every major kind of chapter uh, of black activism over that 50, 60 years, she's in it. Mm. And I got this opportunity to meet her and talk to her. And I said, so what was, you know, I had no sense of history. And I was saying, so what was happening like in 1952 and three that really changed things? And she kind of tolerated my questions for like 15 minutes and then very politely sort of said, you're clueless. Hmm. I mean, in a very, very sweet way. But she said, <laughs> you, she said, you really you're have clueless. to understand something about um, uh, the 30s starting in the 30s. She said there was no change in national politics. But do you have any idea? Do you, she said, do you know who Joe Lewis was? He was a big sports you know, guy. So I said, yeah, a heavyweight boxer. She said, yeah. Do you have any idea what life was like in a black community on a night he fought? Hmm. I went, no. We gathered and listened together. Hmm. And when he won, we just floated for weeks. Wow. She said, I said, yeah, she said, you don't understand because for 20, 30 years, they wouldn't let a a, a black boxer fight because he might win and that would undermine the idea of white supremacy. Um, Jackie Robinson, um, um, and she would tick off movies that Mm -hmm. had black actors in it. And she said there was a sense that things were beginning to shift Shift. culturally and it gave us hope. And then she fast forward and talked about the Cold War Hmm. and that civil rights leaders really understood that I've argued this is the political opportunities piece of it, that for rights struggles, not necessarily for NIMBY-style struggles or those kinds of things that are more Mm threat-related, but for big rights movements, um, they're they're most likely to develop when movement opponents are subject, are are vulnerable to challenge. Um, And and as long as we were an isolationist country worldwide— um, there was no, no, no party was going to embrace the need for civil rights reform. It had ceased to be a national issue at the end of Reconstruction. Mm. And what renationalized it was not moral fervor in the United States. It was the civil, I'm sorry, it was the Cold War. Sure, that created that opportunity. That created that opportunity. So Segregation was vulnerable, and the increasing optimism gave people the hope, right, too, exactly. that, that we can actually do something about this. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. So we, and the, the Cold War, you know, the heyday of the civil rights movement is occurring yeah. at the hottest period of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. The Berlin, um, you already mentioned, Cuban Missile Crisis, the Berlin Wall, uh, Bay of Pigs, I mean, it's Vietnam beginning. These are the central, you know, events of, of the Cold War period. And we're having civil rights track right along with it. Yeah. Because leaders understand that they've got leverage here. Yeah. Um, and when the Cold War ends, and there's detente in the late 60s, a lot of the leverage that uh, civil rights leaders had 
yeah, was gone. It was gone. And in fact, it had shifted because the white South did what no one thought it would ever do. They held their collective noses and they became Republicans. Hmm. They hated the Republican Party. It was the party of Lincoln. Sure. Right? So since then, we've had this dramatic, really incredibly important transformation in the racial geography of American politics that has favored the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And it's a key to understanding a lot of the dysfunctional and illiberal politics we're enduring today. Yeah. So the vulnerability piece of what you described makes a lot of sense to me as an animal rights and environmental activist because I think both the, the fossil fuel industry and the animal agriculture industry are very vulnerable for various reasons. Yep. Um, you know, with, with animals, I, I see kind of the increasing concerns about climate change and the discussions that we've had over the last five to 10 years. Even the New York Times has had many pieces about especially how much beef is contributing to climate change. Right. Um, even the conversation we're having right now about pandemics, you know, there's been a lot of conversations about is factory farming contributing of animals contributing to this in some way. Can we try and avoid this with climate change? Obviously these full wildfires in California, I mean, they yep. made it very emotionally vivid and obvious why right. we need to do something. And, um, and electric cars are very hot. You know, there's an alternative technology that's in many ways cooler and more exciting than these traditional gas guzzling vehicles. So the, the vulnerability piece is there for me and doing kind of campus outreach. Right. The whole part is the part that's missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and we, so and it's I'm, like, how do you, what was it about what happened in North Carolina in 1960 that made all these folks hopeful? And you think it was a rational optimism. It wasn't just a delusion. No. They actually, and I feel the same way about environmental and animal rights activism. Right. I think we, not that we're not facing Huge obstacles, but right. I mean, so were they in 1960, right? Sure. They were getting murdered. Oh, absolutely. Literally. And you, you studied the Freedom Summer. Mm -hmm. People were getting murdered left and right. And yet they still had this, this rational optimism that fueled so much activism and, and hope for change. Yep. I just, I don't see that on campuses now. No, and I'm and sorry. And Stanford's actually an example of this, oh, actually, unfortunately. Totally is. I feel like the students there are pretty hopeless. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the pandemic is a huge part yeah, of this, too. That, that is a part of it, too. Um, I've got two daughters, one who's 30 and the other is 26. Um, and, but, you know, I, I, the, the, I, my 26-year-old, I mean, I, I just think about what they've, the last say six eight years of their lives have been like maybe maybe more than that um you know the dysfunctional politics the rise of trump um the the very real possibility that we will cease to be a, a meaningful democracy that's not lost on them mm -hmm. um climate change and climate fear um is real for for them and lots of young people do they um, live in California too? They live in, in California. Uh, they they weren't living with us when, but they were fully houses. aware and yeah. freaked out because sure. they knew we had evacuated in the night and so forth. Um, uh, you know, you throw the pandemic in, throw uh, Ukraine in, um, and the possibility that Putin, if backed into a corner, might in fact use a tactical nuclear weapon, and then who knows where it goes from there. Yeah. You know, transition to adulthood is not easy under any circumstances. But trying to, you know, try, trying to navigate that tra transition in your life 
with not one, not two, but three or four major existential issues looming. Oh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on a committee at Stanford um, called the Academic Program Review Board, and that we, our job is to review all cases where academic probation or suspension might, might, might result. And um, normally we would handle, at the end of a quarter, we might handle 70, 80 cases. Hmm. We're looking at over 200 now. Wow. And these and that, are disciplinary proceedings, or is it just they're because not, they're people not, are not going to class and they're not? Um, they're, the mental health crisis mental on health campus crisis. is okay. off the charts. So people just sort of lose. Or checked out. Why am I? Why am I care? Yeah. Wow. Why am I trying to go to my midterm? What's the point? Sure. And there's you know, and the pandemic in, reinforces um, isolation. So you don't, you know, now they're back on campus, but it's actually been worse since they came back because they've got isolation dorms and some number of students don't feel fully comfortable going in person. And if you get, if you do, if you test positive, then you have to move out of your dorm and you go over to an isolation dorm. Yeah. So the sense of dislocation and stress on campus is sure. off the charts. Um, and then you, you, you throw in those communities, um, the, the sort of sub-communities of students who are already doubly or triply disadvantaged, virtually every Native American student at Stanford has suffered a loss in their immediate family. Really? Yeah, because wow. the rates of infection on the reservation have I been off the wow. chart. I didn't know that. So, and they're, they're, the one thing that has helped sustain that community has been this, they have a center, they have a big sure. house and a set of offices and advisors, all of which got shut during. So, yeah. And students were pushed off campus. Well, understandably, at the beginning, they had to go home. So they yeah. went back to the reservation where people were dying and they contracted and they had to, you know, basically help. But they were still supposed to be logging on mm -hmm. with subpar um, connectivity, you know. At a reservation in northern sure. area, isolated northern Arizona. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. Historically, students' campuses are an ideal location for mobilizing. You've got a dense, you know, you've got people living together. Um, you've got a lot of control over your time. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't face the same kind of risks that um, a, a somebody would if they were working, you know, I might lose my job or whatever. So it's, it's a natural place for movements to develop. People are also young, idealistic, etc. cetera. Um, and I think in the, after the George Floyd uh, murder, I think a, if you look at the dem those demonstrations, they were uh, wildly disproportionately young people. Hmm. So... There was a moment when a lot of young people who have been feeling very hopeless see, a, see an opportunity to engage in collective action that helps restore some sense of hope. Yeah. But those demonstrations end, uh, the pandemic hits, mm -hmm. and Ukraine, I mean, I, it's a wonder 
that the crisis isn't worse than it is, the mental health crisis. And it's bad. Yeah. It is really bad. That's what we're hearing across campuses everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it isn't just about college students. It's high school kids. Yep. It's Teenagers. adolescents. Yeah. Who are, you know, if anything, adolescents, their their lives feel like exercises in powerlessness an awful lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the time you're at Stanford and you're 19 and you're feeling like you're, you're look, I made it into Stanford, you might be feeling like uh, that you, you, you exercise a little more agency in your life. And then lots of events conspire to tell yep. you that's not so you true. You don't have control. Yeah. But I can't imagine what it's like to be a 14 year old trying to figure out. Yeah. Why it makes sense to even go to class, yeah. given everything that's going on. Yeah. I mean, my 26-year-old daughter, who's a very smart person, called, in like, I don't know, three, four days before Russia started its invasion. And she was saying, I think I need to drive up there. I think I'll be safer there. Because wouldn't they target L.A. with nuclear? I mean, wow. I went, that's not very credible, Molly. I mean, the attack, mm -hmm. they're invading Ukraine. They're going to have their hands full with Ukraine. Yeah. I don't know why they would start trying to send intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles, missiles to Los Angeles. To Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe it's to kill all the influencers in there. Sure. I don't know. <laughs> all the people on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. That's, what, that's a major a threat. It's a major LA. threat yeah. to Russia. <laughs> so, but she was dead serious. She, she was going to wow. get in her car and drive up. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, um, so if a smart, um, pretty well settled, she's she's sort of her transition to adulthood has gone okay. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure, but it has gone okay, and she's in a pretty good, stable situation. And yet, she was sufficiently fearful to to seriously think about packing the car and driving up here wow. to live with us. Um. So that tell that's tip of the iceberg stuff. Yeah. If that's the story of a class advantaged 26-year-old white woman, yeah, who has in fact transitioned to a reasonable first job, mm -hmm. can be that anxious and stressed. Yeah. The levels of stress, anxiety, Power, uh, you know, perceived powerlessness, et cetera, has got to be off the charts. Yeah. And this, unfortunately, is really when we would, we would love to have another youth movement mm -hmm. around the set of issues that are so that critically are important right now. Yeah. yeah, I just moved to San Francisco literally this weekend, and um, I don't know how familiar with the city, but I moved to around 7th and Mission. Mm -hmm. And 6th and Mission is known as yep. the site of a lot of homelessness, drug use, and so on. Right. And you know, I've seen homelessness a lot. I live in Berkeley, and Berkeley sure. has a lot of homelessness. But I haven't lived right there. Right. And, and I there's a tent right outside mm -hmm. my sidewalk now. And when I leave my house, there are unhoused people. But one of the things, one of the first people I met was a young woman, like wow. probably low twenties. You know, really, she was homeless. Yeah. And they, I, I was just really struck by that. And I just, I didn't even realize that I that I had this. Just stereotype in my head of what a homeless person is supposed to be. Not as soon a young as you woman. You said it. I'm just like that can't. Yeah, be. that can't be. Yeah, it's just and I and, and I didn't even realize she was homeless at first. And then I talked to her for a bit, um, and she seemed okay, you know, mm -hmm. in, in many ways, like in terms of her mental health. Right. But she just said, "I just don't have anywhere to live." And I, yeah, it's there's there's definitely something going on. And I I looked at some of the numbers for various mental health conditions. It's not just depression or anxiety disorder. It's like across the board, suicide attempts, yeah. everything, everything has gotten worse. And it's 
and and much worse in younger people. And it's 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 a little terrifying. It's like it is. it's a weird pandemic that isn't being really discussed that much, um, and not that many solutions have been offered to it. That's I actually think your research has one of the solutions though, because I think, and actually that story you just told about Ella Baker has one mm -hmm. of the answers. Cause I think hope doesn't come from just conceptually and rationally thinking, okay, here's the data and here are the institutional changes we've achieved. My guess is that a huge part of what made that experience of Joe Lewis powerful for people was sitting with others. Totally. That when they're, it's not if, cause I mean, you're, you're a sports person. I played sports too. The experience of playing sports or watching a sporting event by yourself is so different <laughs> than the doing of other people. Totally. They're just night and day. It's like, kind of get excited, but I remember when I was a kid, you know, I'd watch Pacers games. I grew up in Indiana. I'd be like, oh, that's cool. They won. And then when I was with my friends and they won, and like, you know, Reggie Miller, Miller killed the oh Knicks in that. Do you remember that the game? The Knicks game where yeah, he, he got like a minute and a half. And we were like literally screaming, and like <laughs> hitting the walls and running around. And it just, you know, there's sure. something about sharing this experience totally. with other people that makes it more powerful. And I think that, you know, maybe part of the problem is that not just because of the pandemic, but because of various other social forces. Well, yeah, yeah I, I go ahead. Yeah, and, and I, the reason I think this is relevant to you is because you did that really important paper on social ties and activism right. in the Freedom Summer. So, I mean, do you think that's part of the problem, that, that oh, we just don't have the social ties we yes. had? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just consider what social media and the, the combination of social media and the pandemic have done. Hmm. We're not spending time with each other, uh, not face-to-face. And it's really, it's quite, I won't say it's easy to generate a, a shared sense of hope in a group, but good luck trying to do it by recruiting individuals. I remember when I was, again, in college, working for this group of peace churches, and they said, you're going to go canvas, you're going door to door and talk to people about that was just the most brutal experience because, first of all, the number of doors that got slammed. Sure. But again, to try to, um, your best chance to recruit people is not, you, movements are not aggregations of individuals. Individual. Yeah. You, you figure out um, what existing groups or spaces are out there that might be, be, be receptive to the message. Yeah. And you go and try to engage essentially in block recruitment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, if you can um, get a, if you can encourage a group successfully to redefine its purposes to include activism on this issue, you can get very high rates of participation very quickly. That was the key in Montgomery, mm -hmm. is the pastors took to their pulpits. On Sunday, the boycott had been announced for Monday, and essentially said, it is your Christian duty to oppose evil. Segregation is evil. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is your Christian duty to support the boycott. And, and they all did it. And they all did it. <laughs> they all did it, yeah. You know, and it's I think amazing. people are, are really wrong. There, there is an economic perspective on this called rational choice. You sure. understand this. And it's that... You get people um, that there's a free rider problem mm -hmm. in collective action that you're going to get the benefits if we solve climate change. I'm going to get the benefits whether I participate or not. So it's not rational individually mm -hmm. to participate. 
So, and, and you know, a lot of smart people put a lot of time and energy into this perspective. And I, my, my reaction is always, yeah, but lots of people, there's collective action happening all the time. So either everybody's making a mistake or it isn't that you're persuading individuals that it's rational to actually, they have selective incentives for participating themselves. I think it's much more what happens is that embedded members of a group are threatened with the loss of member standing mm -hmm. for failing to go along with the normative requirement to yeah. engage in the protest at hand. So once you sold black churchgoers on their need, their Christian duty to stay off the buses, you're home free almost. I mean, and I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but that's how recruiters have to that's think exactly. about this. Go to a receptive social space mm -hmm. and frame the issue in a way that you think will resonate. Yeah. And if the group goes, yeah, we're in, then you've redefined the group norm. Yep. Yeah. And I, I suspect, I just suspect you understand this intuitively and have yep. been good at it. Yeah, I do. And, and actually, I'm looking at the notes I took after talking to you in January 2016. And this is one of the lessons that you tried to teach us, that our best bet is to find some pre-existing community or civic institution. Don't try and just organically go and find people one by one and convince them to go vegetarian or vegan right. or whatever, because it's just... It's not going to be sufficiently effective. Right. You're going to face enormous amounts of regression, which is exactly what we faced. See, the problem is, even though we, we talked to you, we were aware of this research, and we knew the importance of social ties and group identity, there just aren't that many groups out no. there anymore. No, 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 no. And, and I'm saying, there's, there's for groups. some groups, uh, for some issues, there's no shortage of groups that you could go and pitch. Sure. Right. African-Americans, sure. you know, yeah. et cetera, on the threat to racial democracy that looms in the midterms. Yeah. You know, we need to get out and vote. We understand we're there. Um, when you are organizing on behalf of a collective that can't organize itself, mm -hmm. it's so much trickier. How yeah. do you frame the issue so that it really resonates with, with the this. principal identity that the major sources of identity and meaning in people's lives. Mm -hmm. That's such a difficult task. And I salute you. No, seriously, because I think what you guys have done is quite remarkable given the challenges of that kind of organizing. Yeah. What suggestions do you have about either groups or framings that would be more effective at helping people understand how their own identity is in some way at risk? I defer to you. I'm serious. You know, I think the you issue. said that last time too. Well, you, I, I, yeah, but you know, I, I'm talking about a general, a really critically important, the understanding of a really critically important dynamic of how one successfully recruits by appropriating the meaning and identity of existing groups. Those mm -hmm. groups hang together with it by virtue of it's back to the existential functions of the social. Yeah. These little groups, people are going are really going to work hard to safeguard the central sources of meaning and identity in their lives. Yeah. That's the existential perspective. Yeah. And if you can somehow appropriate those sources of meaning and identity, you can build an incredible movement. Yeah. But some issues lend themselves to that better than others. Yeah. And I don't 
pretend to know the animal rights issue well enough to know what are going to be the most yeah. resonant framings. Yeah. One of my biggest concerns is I just think across the board, while it is true that some movements are going to have a harder time than others because mm -hmm. some movements have natural constituencies, this 2017 paper you wrote about right. climate change, that climate doesn't really have a natural consistency. Right. It's not like, you know, Chinese people or LGBT folks or, you know, day laborers have more right. of an interest in climate change right. uh, than, than other groups because there's no just natural demographic right. that owns the issue. But even for movements like Black Lives Matter or the gay rights movement that do have a natural demographic, the amount of isolation in society has just totally. increased dramatically. So I think the data, I think the CDC just did a press release on this saying that I believe the number of 60% of Americans say they're experiencing loneliness. And Is it that high? Yeah, I think it's 60%. Um, doesn't mean they're lonely all the time, but right. they said loneliness is a significant factor in my life. It's, it's hard. And, but the number that I've, um, do you know, I think it's, oh, what's his name? I, it's, I always say it's Yuval Harari, but that's not the right guy. There's another person who wrote a book about mental health, and I'm totally forgetting the name okay. of, of the writer, but he's been on a lot of podcasts. He was on the mm -hmm. Ezra Klein podcast recently. And he wrote about this increase in mental health problems in American society. And he talks about, he's most famous for the concept of junk culture. You know, just as you have junk food, you can have junk culture. Yeah. And like social really... media is kind of like junk culture. It's like it, you eat it and it tastes good in the short term. It mm -hmm. get a dopamine hit, but it's actually really bad for your social life. Your social right. being is suffering. But the statistic he cited that when I first heard, I found incredibly disturbing. I actually went back and confirmed he's right about this because I thought this can't be true. Is um, I think it's a general social survey has asked people for decades, you know, uh, how many people in, in a moment of time, a, a oh, moment which, of crisis in your life, could, could you, you reach out on? to? Could yeah. you reach out to? And I think, uh, you know, a generation ago, I think the median was like five, which seems low. It's like, oh, wow, mm -hmm. people only have five people. And um, again, I'm forgetting the name of the, the writer. He points out that in recent years, like starting in, I think, the late or the mid to late 210s, mm -hmm. the numbers, the median number is now zero. Like the, 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 middle modal, the modal number. No, I think it's the median number, not the modal number. The median oh number is zero. So like the modal number would be the, the most common answer. Correct. Given. The median number is who's yes. like the 50th percentile American, like who's Z the middle American. Zero. So which means 50% more. And, you know, th th that probably includes married people. There's probably some married people are saying, I, I can't even really count. I know, I know a few of those <laughs> you people. You know some married people are like, I can't actually count on my partner. I'm living with I a would, stranger. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's, it's funny. It's it's funny, but it's also really know. sad. You know, we really should, sad. maybe we shouldn't joke about it because if that is the case, it's like, how does anyone organize anything when 50% of Americans say, I don't count on anybody. I can't oh, think of a single person I can reach out to. That's extraordinary. Time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll look for a little glimmer of a little silver lining Please. here. It's an odd one, but um, you'll see where I'm going. But the, that statistic um, in general uh, sort of just, powerfully reinforces your 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 really important point about uh the the erosion of social support and uh, so, social organization informal mm -hmm. and formal in in the u.s and elsewhere in the world i'm quite quite sure and to the extent that successful collective action depends on the mobilization of existing social structure, and there's less of it out there, the challenges become that much more dramatic. The, the little silver lining is people are desperate to be part of a 
Mm. To have the, the sort of the existential function of the social revived in their life. Mm. Sure. So people, you know, again, when people were participating in the George Floyd protests, I guarantee you people felt less lonely, yeah. more hopeful, uh, more connected to others. Yeah, they did. I mean, my daughter was happier, happier than I've, ever, I've seen her in, 50, I don't know, 10 years or wow. something. You know, she was just you know, FaceTiming, Dad, you got to see, this is so amazing. You know, wow. these are powerful experiences. Sure. And when I talked to the, the, when I did the Freedom Summer study and wound up, I literally had, I, I, I took a year and drove around the country and interviewed Freedom Summer volunteers. And what so many of them talked about, uh, almost, almost, embar uh, almost embarrassed, you know, they were going, you've come to talk to me as if I did something really extraordinary. You don't have a clue how much more I got out of the experience than I put in. Yeah, wow. Um, and they, one started talking about being in this sweaty 120-degree church, you know, at a meeting, mass meeting, before they were going to go march the next day and linking arms and singing, We Shall Overcome. And she starts sobbing, telling me. Wow. And she's just going, I found myself, you know, I never have felt more uh, connected, uh, um, more sure that I, I wasn't alone in the world than in that church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Wow. You know, these are powerful shared experiences, as you know. And sure. we both know, too, that the interminable meetings and the fights in fights are terrible. So it's not like everything about movements <laughs> is kumbaya. Sure, yeah. Okay? But there are some yeah. uh, possibilities for connection and existential meaning yeah. that come through collective action. Yeah. So people need it more than ever. They're structured in a way that it's going to be harder to mobilize them but if we can somehow start that kind of a effort and people can respond to it the way you know they did after the george floyd murders you can build a movement pretty quickly that's delivering exactly what people need in this time that was a very great exercise in your own theory of cognitive liberation of framing things in a way that turns anger into hope. That there was you wonderful. Go. Thank you. <laughs> professor McAdam, this is why you're a professor. Oh. Um, so what, why don't I end this way? Because we've been talking now for, oh, wow, it's longer than I thought. It's, it's 413. Why don't I end this way? Um, what has been your single most hopeful moment as an academic or activist in your life? And why? Why was it helpful? Whether it was a study that you completed or a moment in your life because you were an anti-war activist mm -hmm. before you became an academic? Wow. Um, okay, I'll tell you. Two, two, two things come to mind. Um, one has to do with not not hope for the the rest of the world, but just a incredibly wonderful moment in my sort of academic life that sure. I'll, I'll share. But on on the on sort of the the you know hope hope for the world side, I hate to say it, but it was Obama's election. Hmm. It just I never imagined in my life, I given the the issue I had organized most of my career around American racial politics and its various dysfunctions that a black man would be elected. 
And uh, I naively thought we had turned such a powerful corner mm-hmm. that um, it, a lot of us did. It wasn't, <laughs> I, I fully understood. I was not naive about just the depths of racism in this country, given the nature of the history of the country. And I knew that there would be plenty of people out to get him and there'd be gear, groups gearing up to you know, knock him out after four years and so forth. Yeah. But that felt like a, such a powerful moment. And it felt to me in part that, okay, um, demography in the end is on our side. Hmm. That is the percent of the electorate that's white is declining. And, you know, in relatively short order, maybe the threat begins to diminish as a function of that. I hadn't fully counted on just the links to which many whites will go to preserve power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're seeing those links now. But that moment was, I mean, I remember watching him speak in Lincoln Park and just, again, crying, crying, crying. I was uh, there that night. Were you really? I was in Grant Park. Yeah, you, it wasn't Lincoln Park. It was Grant Park. Grant Park. That's yeah. Right. It, and you're right. It was. It was one of the most insanely intense experiences of my life, and it was one of the most connected moments of my life because. Right. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, maybe it was millions of people there that night in Grant Park. Um, Obama was one of the first politicians to convince me to actually participate in the institutional politics because I'd always been such a skeptic of institutional right. politics. But right. And I was at the University of Chicago too, so it was just obvious yeah. to support him. And I had many other, like I have a friend actually who's a Stanford math professor now. He oh, was right? dropped out of math grad school just to canvas for Obama for like a half a year. Wow. So he inspired so many people just to participate in grassroots movements. But it was such an insane day because it was just a day where all these people running around were all just hugging each other. You don't yeah. even know who this person is. Exactly. And you trust each other so much and you're just like, and you're hugging each other out of this authentic sense of genuine joy yeah. and, and belief and, and hope. And yeah. it was, it was such like, it was such a weird experience. It was, yeah. So I, I know what you're talking about. That, yeah. And I was, I was, I didn't have that, but I was yeah. watching. Even it. watching it yeah. was powerful. I'm sure for a lot of people, but yeah. that night was definitely one of the most intense experiences in my yeah. life. Yeah. Um, the, 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 uh, sort of the academic story is, um, so I, I wrote the first book. My dissertation was again, this, um, sort of, um, study on the origin and development and decline of the civil rights movement. And in the course of doing that, I kept running across all these sort of anecdotal stories about kind of major activists in the anti-war movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, who all had first sort of done activist basic training in the civil rights movement, Hmm. okay? And I went, I wonder how common that was. I just, was that, is that partly what accounts for this, the flourishing of all of these movements, nominally separate movements in the late 60s, is that essentially the borning struggle was the civil rights movement but you had activists essentially trained and politicized, radicalized in that movement who then began to take its messages and apply them to a host of other issues. And I wanted to find out how common that was, how common, you know, yeah, anecdotes are not really data. You're cherry picking, right? So I said, how how could I actually study this systematically? So I thought, well, you know, Freedom Summer would be a great starting point because there were roughly a thousand primarily white Northern College students. 
wow, what happened to them, right? Um, Could I find a list of those who were in Mississippi? And what I really need is a list that also has their where they were in school, Mm -hmm. because the only way I could figure out to track them down pre-internet is to go back through the alumni associations. Sure. So I went looking that for this like list. That sounds like a fascinating research project, by the way. <laughs> Wait, is this the basis for your study that was published, the, the Social Ties study? Oh, Freedom Summer, yeah. Okay, that's the, okay this is how you got all that data. Yes, and okay. so, so I, I, went, I went looking for this list. Now, it wasn't like some quest for a holy grail or something. I mm-hmm. was still doing research for the first book at libraries, libraries and archives, okay. especially in the South. And I'd ask, and everywhere I was told, Oh, you know, no, I've never seen any kind of master list. That project was pulled together pretty quickly, spring of 1964, you know. Hmm. So I was at the Martin Luther, King, Martin Luther King Jr. Center in Atlanta, and I asked the head archivist there the same question, and she said, no, you know, no master list, but we actually have copies of the applications in the background. No, no, that's not what she said. She said, we've got uncatalogued materials in the back room hmm. for Freedom Summer, and you're welcome to go look. Wow. I walk in, and literally in the second box I open, there are the, the original applications. applications. Wow. And they're alphabetical. And <laughs> I get to the end of the alphabetic range, and there's another set of applications, also alphabetized, smaller uh-huh. number. And I went, wait. Did one set of these folks make it to Mississippi and the other did not? And that was it. it. Wow. So (laughs) I had this naturalistic experiment experiment. kind of dropped in my lap. Both both groups are motivated to uh, participate. So their values are broadly comparable. Mm -hmm. One group has the experience in Mississippi. The other does not. What difference does it make for their subsequent life? Yeah. And she poked her head in at one point and said, did you find anything interesting? And I was just like, no, do not tell any researchers <laughs> a, about that. Because I literally, yeah, just, I knew you, what I had. You were on a gold mine. Right I there, really didn't course. say that to her. Yeah, no. But I was so <laughs> excited yeah. to find this. I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be the most wonderful research experience anybody could ever yeah. have. That's awesome. So, Yeah, I didn't even realize you did kind of the... I, I obviously know about the study of participation and social ties that was based on those applications. I didn't realize you also used that to do a study of what happened after, that's, too. That's, and, and you so did, you have not, did you empirically conclude your intuition that these folks did end up kind of spreading through all absolutely, these other movements? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The differences between the two groups post are, is, is huge. Huge. Interesting. Um, I should find you a copy of Free, the book Freedom Summer is... Uh, easily the most readable book yeah. I've ever I've, I've read pub- it I just forgot it apparently oh okay okay <laughs> I thought because no, I have it, articles I have yeah. specific articles on the ties piece of it sure yeah. and that's what I thought you were referring no to. that is what I'm referring to and it's, it's the American Journal of Sociology or American Sociology Reviewed piece right. on social ties and higher activism but I've read your book too I, I just haven't read your book as recently yeah yeah that's but, the, the, yeah. The, the the book is both of those things both but those things. it's more really about the impact of Freedom Summer, not just on the lives of those who went and didn't yeah. go, it's really making a case that you can't understand where the, the 60s, the broader fl- flowering of the 60s, without understanding just how critical that Freedom Summer was, yeah. essentially to creating the cohorts that start, the, the free speech movement at Berkeley 
is all Freedom Summer, returning Freedom mm. Summer volunteers. And civil rights activists. Um, wow. The main activists I knew on the West Coast in the resistance, which was an anti-war group, they were all Freedom Summer volunteers. Mm. Um, the principal leaders of the women's liberation, the, the radical wing of the women's movement, Freedom Summer, Summer. volunteers. Wow. It's, it's an extraordinary, I think, an extraordinary story. Yeah. I almost think that the civil rights movement has become the Bible of activism. It's like, it's almost become a mythological narrative. And partly, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of mythological narratives, there are bad stories being told and people don't have an accurate right. conception of what actually happened. But, um, I mean, it's definitely affected us, yeah. not just through your work, but I think I told you before, you know, Dr. Bernard Lafayette oh, has trained did? our activists. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's kind of the reason we do what we do, in part. Oh, know? my God. And he's inspired a lot of people to engage in civil disobedience and, you know, the, the entire process of kinging nonviolence wow. is something he's kind of instilled in us. Uh, and not that most folks weren't attracted to animal beforehand, but just the methodology and the willingness to engage in civil disobedience and the training around nonviolence, that all is, what is a very life. much a product what a of life he's the lived. civil rights movement. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. Um, but since I mentioned it a couple of times, I think that, I don't think we actually said this, I think the percentages, and this is kind of a little bit of a segue, but I feel like I'd be bereft in my obligations as a podcast host. To me, whatever your methodology is and whether you're connected to each other through some shared mythology around the civil rights movement or commitment to the cause you're currently a part of, to me, the big lesson of, of your work in that space is that I think it's if someone had a strong tie to someone else who was joining the, the Freedom Summer, I believe the percentage increase of their participation was like 60%. Is that right? Okay. Which is huge. It's enormous. 60% is just unheard of in any sort of influence, you know, oh, attempt. Like absolutely. if you're trying to make someone go vegetarian, if you're trying to get someone to eat one plant-based burger, yeah. like if you can get 60% increased chances of like convincing someone to buy a McPlant, you know, that's a corporate marketer's dream. It's absolutely. like, wow. So there, and, and the great thing is, social ties are not something that are exclusively in the domain of corporate marketers or, you know, these big political parties. They're really, this is, they, this is the, something we all have the power to do. But this is where the erosion of social ties and the, yeah. and, and the increasing loneliness and disconnection is so yeah. potentially consequential, uh, negatively consequential sure. in terms of the ability to mobilize. Yeah. Cool. I didn't know that story about finding those documents. That's no, a fascinating was... story. It actually reminds me of something um, that is... Ezra Klein, when he left Vox, he did a podcast and he said one of the most important lessons that I've learned as a journalist is there are very few people who do the reading. <laughs> and if you want to actually create some sort of impact, you should do the reading, <laughs> you know, and you, you just kind of have to do the work. Yeah. Like, and I think that that's an important lesson too, because even in the era of TikTok, and this is actually another one of the mistakes we made that, you know, um, you actually said that, I'm just going to quote from my notes here except as one of the potential threats we faced mm -hmm. when we first talked to you in January 2016 was excessive focus on technology. <laughs> There's no evidence that social media can create the leverage that is needed to actually mobilize people for the long term. Face-to-face -face conversations are key. Um, yeah, in the era of TikTok and Twitter where everything's in 280 character tweets mm -hmm. or one-minute videos, it's still important to talk to people mm -hmm. in real life and it's still important to go deep you know, and, and to think slowly and to do the homework and go through the physical documents in some place like the King Center in right. Georgia. Uh, because if we're trying to create change, you know, getting beyond the superficial layers is really, really important because that's where the change is going to happen. Not you, just on the outskirts and on the 
the skin, but at the core. That's beautifully said. Yeah, so cool. Well, thanks so much for the time, Doug. Oh, this is an amazing God. conversation. Anything I didn't ask you that I think I should have asked you? Or any last comments, advice, criticisms, thoughts you want to share? No, I'll tell you, this, uh, this is how I remember all our previous conversations. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. You are incredibly engaging, incredibly smart, oh, incredibly you. inspiring. And I just get fired up talking to you. <laughs> I do, too. Because, I mean, having the, the, the credibility of research, you know, it's mm -hmm. just because you have all these ideas and you have no idea to figure out which of these ideas make sense? Which ideas are complete fabrications that my own mind has convinced me are, are right. good ideas? It's, it's hard to be in that state. And, you know, I, I've always found so much, not just solace, but genuine inspiration. I mean, when I first read your paper on social ties and activism, I didn't even tell you this, I think, but first of all, we made it a core part of our training that everyone looks at that mm -hmm. regression table. <laughs> even people <laughs> never seen a regression table before in their lives. And we explain it, you know, <laughs> we try to avoid the elitism yeah. of, you know, using jargon about statistics and so on. But the other thing is reading your paper when I was a grad student um, and leaving the academy and trying to figure out what I was going to do was really important in not just helping me figure out that, hey, I have to be an organizer. I can't just be an advocate. Right. I have to actually organize people because look at these impacts. Mm -hmm. I mean, if social ties are causing 60% impacts or 60% mm -hmm. increases in impacts, I would be an irresponsible activist if I didn't learn how to make social ties. But the second thing is it actually just generated a huge amount of personal benefit to me reading that paper because hmm. it forced me to get out of my box as like a little academic and MIT just sitting in my computer where I didn't have many social connections. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I actually realized that my true calling and where I feel happiest is when I'm with other people. I like talking to people and I didn't even realize it when I was like an egghead or MIT just doing stats, you know? And so you've actually, your paper actually had an impact on me and just making my life better. So thanks, Doug. Thank you. You're so welcome. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, again, uh, appreciate the time, and we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everybody. Super fun and insightful conversation. I'm really grateful to Doug for joining. And I've been thinking about how to make these outros a little more interesting, because otherwise they just feel like I'm saying the same things over and over again. So um, for the first time today, I think what I'm going to do is express some gratitude to someone who wrote in to the podcast or wrote in to me personally with some thoughts. Um, and the person I'm going to thank today and you're going to find it very surprising, and I'm thanking this person, not because of their name, their, their name, well, actually, maybe a little bit because of the name. Their name is Q. Murray. So, I don't know who Q. Murray is, but kind of reminds me of the, um, the celebrity host from the Joker movie. <laughs> you know, the guy that Joaquin Phoenix gets into a little bit of altercation with on national television and the Joker movie. I'm not going to give away how it ends, because if you haven't seen the movie, go see it. It's really good. But Q. Murray wrote in to me um, some thoughts. And uh, this is actually from a while back, so I'm, I'm going to confess. This isn't feedback on the podcast per se, but it came into my podcast email, and I saw it recently when I was searching for something. I thought I'd express some gratitude for Q. Murray, but let me read the comment first. Uh, and this is in context, in the context of the mayoral campaign. I ran for mayor in Berkeley in 2020, if you didn't hear. Here's what he writes. Your hair looks terrible, and I've never seen your lips not white, dry, and crusty. You're clearly unkempt and unfit for public service. So Q, uh, much to the surprise of maybe folks who are hearing this, I actually want to genuinely thank you because directly as a result of your email, I have restarted the use of chapstick and I don't want to be perceived as unkempt, although there's nothing wrong with being unkempt. So thank you, Q Murray, for giving me that feedback. Uh, 
Don't agree with most of the rest of what you said. I will respectfully disagree with your characterization of the campaign and the support we got from vegans. Um, but well, I want to thank you. I want to thank all of you too. As always, rate the podcast, share it. If you enjoyed this conversation, you found it educational, especially with your activist friends. I mean, I, I really feel like this is a conversation. I, I don't want to be arrogant, but uh, honestly, less so for what I say, but for what Doug says. Doug has decades of experience as an activist, as a scholar of social movements. If you know someone who is involved in activism or even just cares about changing the world, send along the podcast to them and give them a chance to listen to this because there's a lot of value they'll get, I'm sure, from hearing Doug's words. And then obviously, I want to thank the team, as always. Shalom Lafakis is editing this. I'm recording this outro too late for you, as usual. I'm sorry for the delay, Shalom. Hopefully, you can integrate it into the edited podcast by Tuesday. Uh, thanks to Priya Sahani, Ronnie Rose, Crystal Heat, Julie Waldrop, the entire team. I appreciate all your support. And stay tuned for an organizing meeting. If you filled out a uh, sign-up form on the Simple Heart blog uh, as interested in this project, we're going to be scheduling an initial meeting to think about rebranding this entire podcast. Because while I like the Green Pill name, I, I, I'm also starting to feel like, one, it's kind of Ezra Klein's concept. It's not mine. So I, I'm feeling a little bad about kind of trying to co-op someone else's concept, even though I think it's a great concept. Uh, but second, you know, I, I think the green pill sounds a little too matrixy. And what I really want to do with this podcast and the content I'm creating is create more of a connection and community. The green pill sounds like a matrix movie. This is not a matrix movie. This is an attempt to build a connected and kind world. And there's something about the green pill that just doesn't match that branding. So there's a good chance we're going to change the branding of this. If you haven't signed up, go to the Simple Heart blog, send me an email. Let me know you're interested, and we'll have a conversation about how we can rebrand this pursuant to a different set of values. And thanks to Ezra Klein for um, letting me borrow that concept because I did ask for his consent before we stole the name. So it was, I guess it's not stealing. If you get consent, it's not stealing, it's borrowing. So thank you to Ezra Klein, too, for letting me borrow the concept. All right, um, different outro than normal. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, my friends, I will see you later. Bye-bye.